Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. I am so honored to have my dear friend Philip C.V. with me to interview the incredible and iconic uh, Fabian Nicieza. I was just telling my children I'm interviewing my favorite writer from my youth uh, for the second time, which uh, which is such an incredible honor. Uh, what a joy to have you both here. Uh, let's, uh, let's have you both, well, I think everybody knows who you both are, but do you want to do brief introductions, let us know who you are, what you're working on uh let's start with fabian hi fabian happy new year happy new year to you guys too thank you um i'm fabian Nisiesa. i've been a writer among other things in the comic book industry for 35 years i've uh, recently written my first two prose novels from putnam publishing suburban dicks and the self-made widow uh, which are both available now where fine books are sold um and i'm currently working on some comic book stuff for Marvel and a uh, new book for Image. Uh, and I'm working on a third novel, uh, which hopefully will go out to editors to see if anyone wants to buy it uh, sometime in March. That makes it sound like there's some things that haven't been announced yet. Uh, yeah, I don't think... No, yeah, yeah, the Image book hasn't been announced yet. The Marvel stuff, was, uh, besides the Cable miniseries, which we're going to talk about a lot, I have the giant size Fantastic Four issue coming out in February. Um, which which was a lot of fun to, to write as well um and and that i don't think do i have anything else from marvel no not right now no i think they asked me i think they asked me if i wanted to do something i didn't want to do it so nothing <laughs> else right now that could always change in a minute uh fantastic and then over to uh philip next hi philip hey yeah i'm philip cv <clears throat> oh, i'm sorry i haven't literally spoken out loud all day <laughs> uh, I am a comic book artist and writer, been in the industry for about 10 years. Um, for your podcast, I've done a lot of X-Men Unlimited, which are the Infinity Comics on the Marvel Unlimited app. I'm doing a run right now with writers Steve Fox and Steve Orlando, uh, but I've been, had a chance to work on a bunch of cool stuff in the last year with those uh, vertical scroll comics across different um, editorial groups at Marvel. It's been a lot of fun. So Fabian is uh, going to be writing, well, has already written Cable, which will be coming out uh, as we are releasing this. So I, I reached out a few months back. Cable is one of my all-time favorite characters. He's not a character we've talked a lot about on my show simply because we have not reached that place in continuity. However, Philip and I did an epic episode of the Summers Family for the Patreon channel, which ironically I released publicly this morning. Not because of this interview, but just because it was on the docket to release this morning. So if you'd like to hear Philip and I talk about Cable a lot. Uh, Philip, I know Cable is a character that you are particularly fond of. Do you want to talk a little bit about your connection to uh as you describe him in our episode, uh, this chonky daddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so Chad and I are of similar age, and we're not too many years younger than Fabian, but we were both coming into comics and becoming really big fans uh, kind of alongside the rise of Cable. And the first big X-Men crossover that I ever collected was the Executioner song, which is one of my favorite comics to this day. I just reread it last week um, in prep for this. And to me, that crossover and that character and what was done with him and then what was done with him for the years following just kind of encapsulated. <clears throat> Sorry, Chad, I've been drawing all morning, so I haven't been talking. You're okay. um, <clears throat> so that cable to the character to me encapsulates just the range of ideas and imagination that comics can have. Um, not only at a, uh, his core as a character in the way that he cares for the people around him, 
Um, I've described him as comics best dad, uh, but also kind of just the far reaching imagination of his origin and, and his story and you know, time travels and clones and techno organic viruses and uh, everything kind of was distilled down to like, this is comics, all that comics can be, not all, but like it can be so many different things and can tell so many stories, both very large and very personal, very sci-fi and very human. And, uh, and also he's just really fun to draw and there's no, there's no one way to do it. Um, artists across the entire spectrum of skill and talent and, and approach have, have drawn him a million different ways. And it's just, it's a character that I've always just loved. So Fabian, I would love to start with that awful question, and I apologize in advance, <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about the creation of this character? A lot of the characters you've written are characters you inherited. They're part of the toy box, but this is a character you've grown with over the years, as have yeah, readers. Yes, grown with, but not, I don't, he's not a character created. Um, I, I inherited him after the first year that, that he'd been in publication. Um, and it was a pretty convoluted process because I never really got a chance to, um, to to be the writer in terms of determining what the story plot would be uh, until a year into X-Force's run. And that's when basically I inherited the responsibility for the character. Um, and even then it wasn't a very, uh, a very comfortable or very enjoyable writing experience because Everything was all way too convoluted. Um, what Philip describes as a character that, that, that can that can span a variety of different uh, you know approaches and has all these different things uh, as, as part and parcel to him. I, I would describe as being absurdly overstuffed unnecessarily and and much of it forced upon him uh, by by, <laughs> by editors and other creators rather than the natural creative flow developing a character month in and month out. Um, and, and Cable certainly was um, uh, a bit of a pinata in that everybody wanted to stuff their hands into him and everybody also wanted to take a whack at him at the same time. So uh, it, it was an incredibly frustrating creative process in the early 90s. Conversely, the creative process for writing him in Cable and Deadpool for five years was an absolute pleasure. And, and I, I, I point to that run as, as indicative of the character far, far more than anything from the early 90s in my mind. Um, I think that not only had I grown as a writer, but I had the opportunity to, to determine the course of the story and the course of the character's flow, luckily unimpeded by anything other than what I wanted to do uh, for at least four years until the greatest practical joke in the history of comics was perpetrated in which the editor-in-chief removed the character of Cable from a comic book called Cable and Deadpool, um, which I don't think to this day has had been had never been done before, and I don't think it's been repeated since then, <laughs> where, where the title character is removed from his own book. Um, and that was a wonderful reminder, like, with less than a year left in Cable and Deadpool's run, and me knowing the handwriting was on the wall, um, plus I was in the process of signing an exclusive agreement with DC at that time. So I was going to leave Cable uh, and Deadpool with issue 50, whether it had been renewed for another, you know, six issue uh, arc or not. Um, and, and the, you know, the handwriting's pretty much on the wall for the longevity of your title <laughs> when one of your co-stars is removed from the book. Um, 
So, so that that I, when you talk about cable, I I honestly almost always think my mind almost always shifts to cable and Deadpool more than it does the X Force twenty five or whatever. You know, um, that that's all part and parcel of who he is, but. I always felt like Cable and Deadpool was a, a chance where I, I had I had the chance. I don't want to speak for other creators. Um, I had the chance to finally make him who I thought he should be. Uh, for listeners who are less familiar, Cable and Deadpool is an incredible series that ran from 2004 to 2008. Beautiful art, beautiful storytelling, long form. And in the last, I don't know, six or seven issues, Cable's been re removed from the book. So Fabian just loves a gag. I, I don't know if this was you or not, but the name Cable is literally just crossed out on the title with a different word written over it. Yeah, we did that. Years. Yeah, we, we, Nicole, Nicole Bluce was the editor of that book for much of its run. And her and I uh, agreed. And Riley Brown was the regular artist. At that point, so we all agreed that that would be a really fun thing to do. But um, we were all pretty pissed about it. <laughs> it was the, our best and cleanest way to try to get some sort of revenge or at least make a statement. I've uh, I've learned through doing this show and doing uh, lots of interviews at this point that there is so much that reaches the public that is not what the original creative team would have chosen to portray. However, the reading public picks up the book and doesn't know any of the editorial process. They don't know what was as, cut or removed. as it should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So even you know when I when I hear stories like this and I remember the books that I latched onto and loved these characters anyway. You know, there's there's so much uh, about your early X Force run that it, although the creative frustration was there that I latched onto as a reader and it made me stick around and end up picking up almost everything at Marvel. It was your work that converted me to uh, to this uh, crazy comics company. Cable in particular, once I became familiar with the X-Men's history, uh, we, we learned to read comics in different eras. And in the 60s, it's Silver Age, and Professor X has this dream that then Cyclops and or Jean and or Beast kind of interpret in their own ways as time goes on. But Cable in the 90s represents something entirely different with X-Force in that he is taking the dream in a new direction. And the role of him as Cyclops's heir, kind of inheriting the, uh, the 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 dream from Xavier, but interpreting it in a new way, has then been something he's then passed on to his daughter, Hope. Both of them are messianic characters. Both of them represent kind of what being the heir of the X-Men or the dream means in different eras. Uh, what's your interpretation of how Cable sees the mutant cause, if you will? You're asking me. Uh, I I never read a single Cable comic with Hope in it, so I have no clue <laughs> how how they handled each other. Um, as far as I'm concerned, like you know, the character never even was published after 2008 until I just started writing this miniseries. Um, I um I I I think that that Cable Cable's approach to Xavier's dream is just a more realistic approach to the reality of the world they live in, but his, his is done under the caveat that he knows all the different permutations of what might happen if they, if they don't act, what might happen if they do act. Um, it, it, what it does is gives him the, the sense of responsibility, but also the liberation to, to fight now for now because he knows that there's an infinite number of tomorrows and he knows that the, the 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 tomorrow he comes from was 
pretty much a hellscape. And and he doesn't want today to become that, but he's also seen so many other potentials of what it could be that at the end of the day, I got to the point with him where he understood that that, that tomorrow doesn't tomorrow is, is is nonsensical. Tomorrow doesn't exist at all, obviously, today. So his goal is to fight for today. And even in the miniseries I'm writing right now, he's making a very conscious decision that 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 he's worried about a threat tomorrow, but he's he he's decided once and for all that it requires stopping now before it becomes a problem. So his his idea right now is to nip something in the bud before it has a chance to spread to 50 different possible timelines. You know, if he waits 10 more years, it, it, it splits into 20 possible timelines. If, if he waits 15 more years, it splits into 35 possible timelines. But if he acts now, it, it becomes zero timelines, you know, um, because, because the end, he, he, he would end the, the possibility that this could happen. Um, and and I the conflict that I enjoy in what I'm doing right now, which speaks to what we're all talking about here, is that um, there is an imminent threat right now to the X verse and that's happening in X Men continuity, um, and he is ignoring that for the sake of the miniseries. Um, and part of that is is for reasons of how the sausages are made, but that's not as important for the actual story that takes place in between the, the you know pages of the cover. Um, and, and that reason is is I I'm well aware of the threat that is that is ongoing right now with Orcus and 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 you know um, Krakow and all that stuff. I also know that it's going to be tended to. <laughs> so it's like I don't the story. It's my own meta commentary in a way. The story is going to be addressed, however the X titles address it. I am not a part of those X titles. So as the writer, I wasn't all that worried about how they were going to address it, which meant I could have the liberation of having my character not worry all that much about how it was going to be addressed. We all knew it was going to be addressed. Um, so, so let him let him focus on on what he's discovered is percolating faster now than he thought as a means of of addressing this. And that's the, the something called the neocracy. Um, and, and and young cable. Or Nate, for the sake of sanity, there's Cable and there's Nate. Um, Nate doesn't quite get that because he thinks the threat is Orcus and the threat is now, and let's let's deal with it. You know, so that that's where some of their conflict uh, comes into play for the miniseries. And then it, I, I, I'm enjoying it a lot because it speaks to all of the various aspects of the character that, that, that we've mentioned and, and we could discuss. Um, regarding all the whole concept of a, a soldier from the future coming back to today um it, it was always a convoluted to begin with it was really, it was just really really poorly presented and poorly planned and poorly poorly executed quite frankly um but 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 the idea is how, what do you distill out of that and what i tried to distill out of it in cable and deadpool i'm applying as well now to the cable miniseries i'm working on which is which is I'm, I I want to I want to fix the problem now before before it becomes a problem. That's all. Uh, you know, let, let's fix it now. And yeah. I tried to do that a little bit with Cable and Deadpool in terms of him trying to improve the conditions on the planet. 
and and what I'm doing with the miniseries is just him being very proactive about nipping something in the yeah yeah so with like essentially roughly eight to ten years between each of your like uh, big cable series essentially with this one how has your approach to the character changed or grown as you've grown as a person and as you've seen life change around you and and things like that now that you're coming back after about 10 years since cable deadpool ended to revisit the character well i i, I wrote um i wrote i wrote a cable deadpool um miniseries which was a a, a digital a thing that they reprinted mm-hmm. which was a three issue thing called split second and, and i did that in 2015 i think okay uh, so so you know that and that was also an interesting time because i had to they asked me to reset him, basically reboot him because he, I guess he'd been depowered or something. Um, so I think that what I've, what, what writing him at my age now, because now I'm older than he is chronologically. <laughs> you know, if I, if I see him as a guy who's about 56 years old, I'm now older than that. And, and that's interesting because I always was way younger than that. Um, when, when I used to write him, I, I think that I I bring more of a sense of perspective and, uh, for lack of a, a, a more facile word, um, uh, a, a bit of comfort to him. The, 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 he, he, I find him to be a little more comfortable in his own skin, which yeah. wasn't really the case when I was originally writing him. Um, and I also have tried to um, increase the amount of his dry wit. <laughs> um, he 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 has a better sense of perspective on on his situation and the the world around him than I think he used to. And it's not surprising because being thirty years older or twenty years older, um, what, whichever the case may be that that's that's something life affords you it affords you a little more perspective it affords you a little opportunity to have a sense of composure about things that have happened and how you approach things so no matter what he's a less bombastic character you know i could ask scotty to draw him carrying the biggest chiclet gun in the world (laughs) but the difference is when i wrote him in 1992 he thought he thought that chiclet gun was cool and made him powerful. Now he understands that the chiclet gun is mostly just to make you think he is really powerful and really strong and tough. You know, um, mm-hmm. he, he he doesn't need the prop to have a, a little more sense of self perspective and self confidence now. And I think that 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 that's just part and parcel of me having written him as much as I have. In, in, as you mentioned, a really fun way. When you, when if I'd written them continuously for thirty years, I don't. Maybe we wouldn't be at that point, you know. <laughs> but because I, I parachute in every five, every ten years or so, or whatever. Um, it, it, it's good because I, I, I just approach him with the, the, who he is combined with the marker of where I'm at, you know. Mm. Yeah. The idea of mutant homeland has always been there from the start. And the Xavier Mansion never felt like the homeland for me. It always felt like the waiting place. Xavier's waiting for people to make the right decision, waiting to come around. Where Magneto launches, you know, an island and a floating base and tries to take over a country right from the beginning. You've had the idea of uh, exploring this multiple times from really complex angles in Genosha and in Avalon. 
Uh, and in the Cable Deadpool series with Providence and with uh, the conquering, uh, conquering maybe not be the right word, but of Rumekistan, uh, there's been some a, really- It was a completely democratic election. <laughs> <laughs> there's been some really cool ideas around uh you have a way of taking a concept and you know turning the coin over and over and exploring things from different angles uh what is it with this thought about homeland uh and the desire to write this story and what does that mean to cable well for me uh, it, cable cable sees both magneto and xavier's um if you're going to paint them into absolutist approaches he, he sees it as as ultimately futile. I have not read enough of the Krakoa era content. I've read I've read bits and pieces here and there, but I certainly haven't read all the titles through the through the timeline as it unfolds. Because I don't really read monthly comics anymore. I just read trade paperbacks and I usually do that a year or two after a book has come out. So my sense of place in terms of how the storyline unfolds is always really lost. So I'll I'll read you know Karen Gillen's um x-men trade paperback but i couldn't tell you for the life of me where it fits you know <laughs> so i it, um i would it's a lot to keep track oh, of yeah okay it always was but i when i was in the middle of it it was a lot easier um i i, I would always hope that whoever wrote cable during the krakoa storyline would have written him with the understanding and perspective that this is a completely flawed idea it's never going to work um if you look at what he did when he created Providence, it was really not a country. It was a think tank. It, it, and, and he brought in all different kinds of people there. And, and, and it's because he comes from a future where it's not about mutants versus humans. It, it, it's about everyone versus everyone. That it's even and, better because he's taking the tools of this church that's trying to brainwash everybody. And like, let's let's revisit that and make it this instead. It's a it's a really it was a great story to reread. And yeah, the and the whole idea is that that he has he has enough perspective on it that he understands that it, it's not us versus them, it, it's us versus each other. And and he's never going to really fall into the or he shouldn't. Let me put it this way: any writer can write anything they want, any editor can prove anything they want. Uh, I'm I'm talking about my perspective of the character. He 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 feels that the whole mutant versus humans is a is a con game, a shell game. It's really no different than than the the agitation and anger for profit, you know, uh, situation we have set up in our society now with social media being what it is. It, it, Who's benefiting from that? Um, and, and the truth of the matter is, is the, the the whole planet benefits from it. it you know, whether whether it's your own personal interpretation of of, of what your self worth and validation is based on on you being a human and them being a mutant, or whether it's an arms manufacturer who profits from the ability to create advanced arms because you have to be able to stop a mutant you know what i mean all that stuff is all bs you know and, and ultimately cable comes from a world where all of it was bs because when apocalypse conquered everyone he ended up conquering everyone you know um so so i i always found i when i when the krakoa thing was announced and i saw i read hickman's initial stuff the the, the first year or so of all of it i thought it was a really fun interesting concept could not and would not ever have real long-term status quo ability, you know, because it's too disruptive of 
any semblance of a, a shared universe continuity. Because look, it's not this isn't rocket science. I mean, Hickman Hickman was allowed to do something that all of us had talked about time and time again. You know, the idea to to, to give them their own place. So uh, if Bob Harris had his way, we'd be in a there'd be Earth. Earth one and Earth X, <laughs> and Earth X was going to be where the X Men lived because um, he never wanted to really interact with Marvel mainstream stuff that much, you know. Um, and 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 oftentimes the shared universe diluted some of the themes of of the characters and the storylines because, rightly so, you can say why are the Fantastic Four applauded and the X Men, you know, you know, hated and feared they they, they you know. Why is the Rocky guy okay with people, but the guy who turns into metal isn't okay? You know, um, so, and and it's really difficult. You really got to jump through through some hoops in order to really um, to, to really explain that cleanly. Now, I, and I think I believe that there's a very logical, clean explanation for it, but it, it's not it's not A to B. You know, <laughs> it's A to L through a couple other letters to get to that. You know, um, and, and that always made it a little problematic. So the idea of Krakoa is fun, but to me, it it was always going to be a three to five year window. You know, um, and, and lo and behold, it is a three to five year window. And I have zero idea of the machinations that went behind the scenes that that got to that point. Really don't. I have no clue what sales are anymore. I have no clue what the publishing program is. I have no clue what they say behind you know in the hallways up there anymore and one and um, so, so from a but from a story standpoint, you know, a, a, a world discussion standpoint, um i can't imagine cable would have really been that supportive of koa other than to make everyone else realize that there's really no there's no game to be played where separating us from them is ever going to make a difference. You know, um, I hope, I don't know. I hope that that was voiced somewhere. I still got to write the fourth script. So maybe I'll voice it there. Um, the, the, <laughs> I, I would hope that, that, that someone would, would have understood that, that it's a fool's game to, to do what they were doing. You know, um, it, it, it was destined to never work. Not the least of which is from just from a sheer publishing reality standpoint. <laughs> not even counting the characters, not even counting their their view. You know, um, Deadpool might break the fourth wall and go, "Well, of course, Marvel is going <laughs> to make this all go away at some point." Um, but 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 I I think it's an important aspect. Um, you know, because I think it's important that they get. I think it's important they get a chance to do storylines like that. But I also think it's important that the characters learn something from it and grow something. I don't know what Tom Brevoort has in mind for his editorial reign of the titles, but I sure hope that somehow it, it gets back to a little bit more basic. You know, I hope it gets back to a little bit more. We, we, we're, we're fighting for ourselves, but fighting for you too, you know, um, and, and progressively. Yeah, so kind of on the topic of continuity, like I know kind of early on in your career, it seemed like you were having to mop up and tie up a lot of people's loose ends and 
then there was quite a while you were seeding your own stories from like Black Womb Project or other things like that. And now you're working on stories that are both work in continuity, but are not mired in what's happening right now. How do you go about approaching creating these stories that kind of exist timelessly, where they can fit I, in where they're at, but they also don't have to? It's, the answer to that is incredibly easy, bro. <laughs> Anytime I try to use any of the any of the current things, I'm told I can't use the current things. <laughs> So I just go back and use my own thing, comfortable and safe in the knowledge that no one has used that thing since I last did it. So I have, I end up, I end up falling into this little embryonic Fabian verse. And I did again in Cable in this miniseries. You'll see as it comes out. I just fall back very comfortably into being able to tell a self-contained story in the Fabian verse, um, and, and that's fine with me. I, I. I, I got over the whole continuity stuff. I got over the whole pop writer stuff. I got over that a long, long time ago. And, and it was while I was writing Cable and Deadpool that I got, I, I, I found, I felt so comfortable being in a corner by myself where the company barely even knew they were publishing this book. It was just, I could use Prester John if I wanted to, because Pat, <laughs> Pat Zerker wanted to draw him. I, I could, you know, can I use Silver Surfer? No, you can't. Can I use Silver Surfer for one page? Yes, you can. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Um, yep. and, and and the same thing happened here, just in this miniseries. It's like, this is the story I want to tell. Oh, we like that story. It, it works. You can't, because originally it was supposed to be quite a bit more entwined with whatever was happening in, in, in the Fall of X story mm -hmm. line. But the timing of that and the timing of when they needed my scripts made it completely untenable because mm. it's very hard to tie into something when you don't know what's happening yeah. in that, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and I and I don't play that game anymore where I pretend to be trying to do that, you know? I, yeah. I, so I, I'll, I just walk, it's, it's, it, it, I literally just walk. And I have walked some things in the first issue. I tried to walk from my... <laughs> The infamous Rick Grayson thing I did over at DC <laughs> when I was scripting Lamont Plus a few years ago. I quit after the first issue. They go, you can't quit after the first issue. Of course I can't quit. <laughs> so I ended up staying for like three, and that was it. That was my my compromise. Um, I, I I would have just not handed in the first issue script instead, find another writer. Um, because it was untenable to try to really to try to in any real in any real viable way connect the the scene by scene requirements of a issue by issue story to the status of where that that high-end story existed mm -hmm. it wasn't there yet um and, and all they needed is for me to get these two characters back to point point c you know mm -hmm. they told me you know this, this character's here this character's here um we just need you to get them back to there and I said, are they together? No, they're not together. I go, okay. So I look as a writer from a nuts and bolts sort of thing. It just, um, it, it's just how the sausage is being made. It's like, all right, thank you. That just gave me my opening of my book. I, I know yeah. <laughs> the opening of my book is Cable has to rescue Nate because Nate is currently in continuity, he's been kidnapped, you know? Okay. Um, and, and what I do with Nate and Cable after that is my miniseries, you know? <laughs> and where I leave them is you can, whatever happens, I don't care less how he drops into the, they drop into panel, you know, in fall of X number seven. I don't even know what the story's called. <laughs> um, 
and, and Jerry can do whatever he wants. And I like Jerry a lot and respect him tremendously. But you know, I'm 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 not going to worry that much about what they're doing if it if it's not anything that affects me. So if I'm telling my story and my story is Cable wants to stop the neocracy from from becoming something and Nate is really peeved at him because he wants to stop Orcus because, you know, they did kidnap him after all, you know, um, and Cable's like, well, they kidnapped me to let it go, you know, um, <laughs> then I can tell that story. Mm-hmm. And it, and in the telling of that story, when you read the miniseries, you'll see it, it has a very, very natural tie-in to mainstream Marvel Universe stuff, yeah. which is what I love to do. My bread yeah. and butter is my favorite stuff to do. If I, if I can get the great gargoyle into a, a, a cliffhanger ending splash page, I'm going to do it. But how I get the great gargoyle into that makes total sense because you're the biochemist and I'm doing something that requires a bunch of Marvel universes, you know, geneticists and scientists to, to have fingerprints uh, on, on the storyline. So there you go, you know, um, and, and, and my first thought was actually Mr. Hyde. And it was told, no, you can't use Mr. Hyde. Okay, fine. So, you know, <laughs> on to the next one. Greg Gargoyle. Scott Eaton would love to join a, a, a closing the splash page of Greg Gargoyle. There you go. Um, and, and that's it. You just, uh, I, I don't, I don't sweat it or fret it that much anymore. Like I used to, I just sort of go with the flow a lot better than I used to. And, and I find stuff out of it. I yeah. did the same thing with the the Juggernaut miniseries a few years ago. There was things I wanted to do that I wasn't allowed to do. Okay, I, I you know I pivot and I and I find some stuff out of that, you know. Um, and, and once again, the storyline I was working on right now made it very very natural to to touch on a couple of Fabian verse things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Can you give a hint to what some of those nuggets from the Fabian verse might be? Uh. A, character that i think has not appeared since the first time he appeared and that was 30 plus years ago um Hmm. a character who has appeared uh, and i sort of just wrote her like a couple years ago or a year and a half ago um she'll be in it too um another character who i had no clue had not appeared once since the last time I wrote them um, and will appear in this miniseries, but you won't even know they're appearing in it until like the fourth issue. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some clues there. <laughs> I'm really excited. Uh, That's great. Yeah. It's just fun. Um, you know, one was, one was, um, again, they all made sense. I got, I got, I'm dealing with, uh, I'm dealing with a storyline, which is um, a, 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 an organization or a group that, wants to solve the mutant human problem by advancing the evolutionary um, aspects of everyone. So inhumans, humans, mutants, everyone could evolve to a singular race, uh, you know, homo unitis. And and that this is a this is a tie-in to the story you set up with the Black Womb in the X-Men Legacy issue. No, it? it's not. Stop it, you're lying. Um so <laughs> so so the idea being that as a result of that, you're dealing with with you know human mutant powered people DNA, you're dealing with um with how to transform flesh into energy. Because the idea the Homo Unitas will be revealed as as changing us to one 
what that one is, is the state of energy, energy beings, you know, uh, advanced and enlightened energy beings. Um, but, but ultimately soulless and emotional too. So, um, so, so that ties you into the possibility of just about like, geez, you know, the light masters, Zach, you know, X-ray from the UFOs. There's all these characters that you can, you can play with. There's all this genetic soup you can play with. And then you can play with characters who had always been interested in that genetic soup, the characters who, manipulated it to a great degree like black womb and other characters who never got the chance to because they sucked from their get-go and we just ignored them you know um, <laughs> and 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 all of that stuff is fun it's just fun fodder uh, and, and fun fodder that wouldn't be anywhere near as much fun if it didn't have an artist like scott eaton and you know inkers like 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 cam smith and, and victor nava doing it um because scott eaton makes everything look powerful everything looked vast everything looked look the scope and scale is wonderful you know i asked for genetic uh, i asked for dna towers with dna helixes floating around them and each one <laughs> contains the little little slivers of dna samples of hundreds of characters and he draws it you know and you're like oh man <laughs> there's not a lot of guys that can do that okay i'll take it you know um and and he can draw cable with the big thing. and 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 he can draw he can draw cable very quiet intensive and, and uncertain and, and that's not an easy thing for a lot of artists to be able to do so uh, i've been i've been really lucky i don't do that much stuff superhero stuff anymore i don't do that much for marvel um part of the reason is because i'd like i'd like to know in advance who i'm going to be working with and that rarely ever happened <laughs> um but but when i when i know who the artist is going to be it, it it's usually it, it usually makes for a much more enjoyable experience you know, when when it's somebody that uh, that I'm a simpatico with, and somebody whose art style is something that I that, that falls into my bit. You know, so I got to work with Carney and Juggernaut. I, even a short story I did with uh, for um, one of the Marvel Comunidades books, I did a Nova short story, and that had Taco Medina chart. It was great. So, yeah, you know, getting to work with guys like that really makes a big. I am not going to ask for confirmation here, but I'm putting my own prediction out there that we get to see Fabian writing Amanda Mueller and uh, Fontanelle in the upcoming Cable Limited series. And if so, I'll be thrilled because I uh, we just did a, a long episode about the Black Womb. Uh, thank you, by the way, Fabian, for answering the questions I asked via email for that episode. But oh, I'm sure. excited and, to see and what you, you can you're do. Batting, you're batting 500 on that. So if you were a baseball player, you'd be getting a $700 million contract if you were by, <laughs> batting 500. Yay, <laughs> yay. I forgot about Fontanelle. There will be no Fontanelle. Oh no, poor Fontanelle. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You can still fit her into issue four. I got faith. <laughs> I, I, you know what? Now that you, <laughs> no, that, I got, I got another little surprise there. I'm gonna pull out. <laughs> uh, I'm really, I'm really excited. Um, I would hate to Tina to to team up with my teenage self, the uh, little closeted repressed Mormon boy that I was at the time. <laughs> Uh, what's it been like writing adult cable with a, a teen cable? And uh, would you enjoy teaming up with your teen self? Um, I the to answer the first question, it, it's been a lot of fun to write them together because they are almost the stereotypical definition of how a young person looks at an old person and how an old person looks at a young person. You know, they are the stereotypical definition of gen generation, you know, and, 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 and to that, you add in 
the complexity of the older version having lived such a life of hardship, knowing that the younger version still has that coming. And the younger version, knowing that the older version screwed up every which way he could, failed miserably a time and time again, and that's what I'm going to do. You know, like <laughs> there, there's a lot of fun there. Um, and, and, and it's done the way two guys like this should do it, which is pathetically skimming the surface of the real emotions and the real feelings because they, they can't they can't really be true to themselves um and and I, that that's gonna hit a little bit of a head because i really want them to have a little bit of an emotional catharsis in the fourth issue but i will admit that there's a little bit of a um a little bit of a dichotomy as i write it because i'm being given editorial impressions that they're the same person and I'm telling them up front, they're not. They're, it's impossible for them to be the same. You know, they're not. I don't care what's been done in the comics. I read the 12-issue cave, Young Cable series that Jerry did, um, but I haven't read other stuff that Young Cable appeared in. I don't know if they explained it or how they explained it, and I don't care because they can't be the same person, you know, <laughs> because older Cable never did what younger Cable did, period. So I don't younger, care. If younger Cable murdered older Cable because he blamed him for not returning the original X-Men who had time-traveled into the present back into the past. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I... Someone told me about that, but they they got over it. They're okay now. <laughs> I don't even. I don't. It's so so. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's why this is the time travel. So, um, so I I write them as 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 knowing they're not the same person, but knowing they have the same fate, and and that that's the key to me. I could care less that an editor thinks that oh. From a continuity timeline standpoint, they're the same. I don't care about that. I, to me, it's what, what's the what's the emotional resonance to it? The story is just as emotionally resonant if each of them understands what their fate is, as opposed to the details of whether they're the same person from the same timeline. You know, which by the way, they're not because they can't be. But that's besides. So, so, you know, I, I like writing that, you know, young Nate's a teenager, so he he really tries to pretend otherwise, you know, how scared he is. And, and old Cable is a stubborn, frustrated, sad, um, failed soldier who is terrified for what his young version is going to go through, but isn't 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 going to um succumb to the weakness of admitting that or or acknowledging it i mean you you you, you get up you fight that's what you do you know uh, and that's what he's gonna have to do is his, his attitude you i know? think you i think you may have answered the second part without meaning to but would you like to team uh, team up with your teenage self <laughs> i don't know that i'm that much different from my teenage <laughs> that's the sad part i don't i don't I always joke that I'm like, luckily, whatever my chronological age is, it's always muted by the fact that my emotional maturity is still stuck at 14. So <laughs> I feel, I, I feel like, I, I feel he would be just truly devastated by my loss of hair, but <laughs> I don't know that our personalities would be all that different. Um, 
uh, sadly, really sadly, no, I don't. I would have far better perspective on than my younger self. Did. I am, um, believe it or not, if my son heard me say this, <laughs> he's home from work today. If he heard me say this and laugh out loud, I'm not as quickly prone to anger now as I used to be. <laughs> Let's put it that way. He would laugh, <laughs> but but it is the truth. I am not as I am not as quickly prone to anger. So I, I would probably pat the younger self on top of his hairy head. And say, enjoy it while you got it, kid. <laughs> so I know you've uh, got two prose books out now. I said you said you're working on your third. Got creator on stuff with Image. I know you and Riley did a couple seasons of Outrage over at Lion Webtoon. Yes, yeah, um, which was what is, it's technically it's creator shared because oh, yes. Webtoon has a, a small percentage of that, which mm -hmm. we understood. It was just a, a good business deal. But Riley yeah. and I have eighty percent of it, so it's creator. Yeah. Um, so what is it about the X-Men uh, and these stories that you're telling that, that uh, draws you back in? You know, it's, um, I, I mentioned that I don't, I don't do a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't get asked to do a lot, but I, I actually get asked to do more than I, I say yes to, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so they'll ask me this five, six times a year. Do you want to do this or that? And, and they say, yes, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and oftentimes it, it all boils down to, to editor, character, and and, and when possible, artist, you mm -hmm. know, um, and and both, like getting me to do that that Nova story and Comunidades took it took Lauren the the editor Amaro who's editing me now on cable. It took her a long time. I said no a lot because I just yeah. didn't feel I, I didn't feel like it was being here as an immigrant since I was four years old. I didn't feel it was my right to claim a heritage that isn't really mine you know in terms of a hispanic heritage or latino heritage um but the, they the the you know she was persistent and then she dangled the opportunity to write nova and i really like writing both versions of nova um and, and then she told me paco may be available to draw it and i was like all right um but but like like a few years ago jordan called jordan white called me up and said would you be interested in doing a juggernaut miniseries? And I don't think the words even got out of his mouth when I said yes. Mm -hmm. I didn't know Ron wasn't assigned as the artist just yet. You know what I mean? And yep. he did the same thing this time. Would you would you be interested in doing a cable series? And this time I said, not a retro story, not a past story. I don't want to, I, I'm really tired of all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I got all of that kind of in my system when, when we got to do uh, the Adam X two-parter and it's film <laughs> legend but i felt like that's it i'm i'm good to go i got to tell my 30 year old story um and um and and he he said no no present day tying in we're doing this big thing called the fall of x next next year and i said why is it called the fall of x if it's coming out in the spring and he he told me shut <laughs> up and and um and he said cable and i said okay yes because i love writing cable that's really what it amounts to so i love writing cable love yep. the character i've always loved the character um and 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 i feel I, I i feel not to be too arrogant about it but i feel like i i understand him in a way that others don't yep. and is that my fault for not having been clear enough no i don't think <laughs> it is i think that too many people have an incredibly flawed interpretation of who he is based on taking things out of context taking a panel out of context or taking a, a snarly face yelling out of context um, and, and not looking at the scope and body of, of his, his tenure. Um, 
read X Force after Rob left and, yeah. and see who Cable was. Read Cable yeah. and Deadpool. Um, yeah. re read um, David Tishman did a really good job of Cable uh, on on the Cable series for for a while there too. Um, you know, there, there there are lots of examples of how to do the character right, and there are lots of examples of how to do the character wrong. And quite frankly, I, I feel a lot of creators, for some inexplicable reason to me, tend to lean towards the version that's wrong, you know? <laughs> and and, and I, I think maybe because they think that that's more bombastic and that's what 12-year-olds want, but those 12-year-olds are now 45 years old. So they want some of that bombast, but they also want it with a, a more nuanced and more thoughtful approach to the character's personality and and. Who he is, and I think I bring that because I totally understand the bomb. I totally get the chick like jump. I totally get you were 12 years old when you read it, and we were writing it for you for crying out loud. Um, yeah. But by the same token, I also understand that that characters have to have opportunities to grow and evolve. Mm -hmm. And Gable's an odd character in that regard because he always gets yo-yoed and, and or rubber banded back to something else. Mm -hmm. And I and I'm just gonna write him the way I think he should be written. You know, I feel very called out. I was 12 when I picked up my first book and I'm 45 now. <laughs> of course. You are. I, I could spot you guys a mile away. <laughs> uh, I want to ask, this is just an odd continuity question. I, it's one I find difficult to answer. What is the techno organic virus and what does it mean to cable? All right. The techno organic virus. I don't even remember how it got. Is a transmode virus was a derivative of the of the alien being the alien life form that Warlock the technarchy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it it basically is a, a creeping manifestation that that takes control and takes over a physical human shell, physical form, and turns you into one of those technarch you know creatures. If I recall, I don't. It's been a long time. He was the the. the the baby was in, infected by the, the techno-organic virus, okay? And it would have consumed him and turned him into, uh, you know, into a, a basically an automaton under control of the techno period. Um, had even, even in his nascent forms, Cable, young Nate, not had uh, an internal mechanism to keep it at bay. And that internal mechanism was his telepathy and his, his telekinesis, which work every minute of every day to keep the transmode virus at bay. Now, he's been able to use that to his advantage when he gets injured or wounded. The, the, the techno-organic mesh can be given an opportunity to grow, and that helps create some of the cybernetics and stuff like that. But it's convoluted for many reasons, Chad, not the least of which is the whole Baby, baby Nate Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor's son grows up to be Cable was not Rob's original plan or idea for the book or the character. Grafted on him by, like I said earlier, other fingers poking the pie and wanting to get involved, you know? And it, it almost became a runaway train back then where that too many people thought that made too much sense. So, yes, let's do it. And 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 it's something Rob didn't really fight at the time because he understood the positives of it. Ultimately, I think it was a boondoggle to the character, but um, which is why I 
sincerely tried to make Cable the clone and make Sprite the real son, but that was approved for two seconds and then finally got got vetoed and I was forced <laughs> to reverse it. Um, so, so the idea being that the very thing which keeps him alive is the very thing which could kill him. You know, the, the very thing that 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 keeps that the very thing that allows him to keep his humanity even with the encroachment of the machinery um, is, is the very thing that would steal and rob him of his humanity, you know? And, and it also has been incredibly um, uh, stifling for him because it's, it's often more often than not prevented him from being able to manifest the true extent of his powers. He's been able to do it a couple times, but ultimately he, he has so much of his actual powers are inward because they can't he can't release them outward if he released them outward it would give the virus the chance to go you know um it's almost like if cable if deadpool didn't have the perpetual cellular regeneration the cancer would consume him and he died because he had terminal cancer up the wazoo big time you know like you're going to be dead in five seconds got terminal cancer um and 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 it's that constant and that's why him and cable and deadpool always had that nice yin yang to them um each of them have something which turned them into a monster but it's the only thing that allows them to continue being human and live. you know so it's, so oddly, that, that, it's always fun to me to it's oddly he, it's oddly healing to hear you say that I, I i mentioned this in my first interview with you but when i was a teen I connected with the character Cable and Cannonball the most. Cannonball because of his sense of like familial responsibility. But for Cable, my queerness was a threat to me at the time. And there was always this threat that if I can't keep it at bay, then it's going to overwhelm me. Uh, and I, I saw it as something very threatening. And even as a teen, I knew that that's why I connected with Cable. But to hear you talk about the T.O. virus as the thing keeping him alive, that's weirdly healing for me now to think of my queerness as something that made me very special. And of course, I believe that now, but to apply that to this allegory for me is, is oddly healing. Uh, so thank yeah, you and I think that it's, an, it's a really important, I think it's a really important aspect that of the characters that that we often don't don't respect enough is that that how you express their internal conflict and external conflicts uh, really really can matter to the lives of the readers. You know the, the 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 one the one wonder of the Stan Jack you know Steve sixties Marvel development was giving giving the characters feet of clay, giving the characters personalities and problems, okay? that That's all well and good, What how it developed and manifested, especially expressed through X-Men and through Chris's uh, on the title for Or the character The Thing, who is beloved still yeah, for yeah, the same reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, to, it, it's to use their own personal character conflicts, and every one of them has to have a slightly unique one to themselves in order to make them, you know, a good character. Uh, which I think Cable is, but how 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 they navigate that and how they manage it, how they express it, is absolutely something that can can be seen as a, a, a affecting or impacting the real lives of the readers. You know, um, I don't I don't know that enough of us understand that. Um, I know I do because I've had readers break down on my shoulder crying because. Deadpool helped them get through their depression. All that, 
stuff. You know, I, I, I really respect it in that regard a lot. And, and, and I, it, it harkens back to my own thing. And I didn't even understand it until I was writing Suburban Dick's uh, novel. And, and, and a lot of people were, I had to talk so much about it that it made me realize that it was a part of me. Um, and, 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 and the reason I gravitated towards Superman when I was a kid is because at the very beginning of his TV show, they told you he was a stranger from a strange land and he'd come here to do good and blah, blah, blah. And I had immigrated to this country when I was about four and a half years old. And I had to learn the language from not knowing it at all. And it luckily wasn't held back at school or anything like that. But there's a gray area there for me between like the ages of five and seven where it's all still a fog because I was learning language. And, and I remember what it was like going to the store with my parents and, and they try to talk to the, the sales clerk and they get an eye roll and I'm seeing the eye roll and, and as a little kid. And now in hindsight, I know my parents saw the eye roll too and they had to deal with that on a daily basis because their English was so bad, you know? Um, and and, and it, writing Suburban Dicks, which has a lot of aspects of that incorporated into the novel, uh, you know, the, the fear of diversity in our suburbs and cultural change and, and white flight in our suburbs because they, they fear it's turning into, you know, something else. Um, I, I've always tried to navigate that aspect of me since I've been here my whole life, pretty much. My schooling was all here. I understood that I'm walking into a job situation with a funny name, but they didn't know what to make of me because I had no accent. I had no, you know, you know external differences as it were you know um and, and that always threw them off a little too which i like um but but you know the, this stuff this stuff that we do the the things the characters represent they matter you know and and, and i don't dismiss that I, I respect them and appreciate it a lot you know doesn't mean we're always going to get it right doesn't mean we're always going to say it right doesn't you know that's where that's where some of the problems happen. You're held to a standard, which is really hard to, to maintain on a story by story, balloon by balloon, panel by panel basis. You know, um, but 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 I do get it. I do understand. You know, baby, and it's just a tremendous honor to hear you share your stories and to have this time with you. Thank you sincerely. I uh, I remain just an incredible fan. I'm so excited to be a modern fan as well. I'm really looking forward to the new cable book. I hope you enjoy it. I really am looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about it. I, I'm look, I, I I'm pretty happy with it. I'm pretty happy with how it's turning out. I still got to write the fourth script, but uh, but but then the, those are always the tough ones because you got to wrap everything up. Um, but but I'm really happy with where we're at right now. It's a really good creative team. Uh, the editor Lauren Amaro has done a wonderful job of keeping us communicating, mm. which a lot of editors don't do anymore. Uh, <laughs> we are all talking to each other constantly. Pages are coming in. We're all looking at them and commenting on them. Their questions are being asked. Even at the coloring stage, we're all getting involved. And, yeah. and that in and of itself has been a pleasure because it feels more like how we used to make comics mm. than kind of like the, the striated, separated way that we seem to make them now. Um, yeah, Lauren's amazing. I've been working with her for the last year, and she's incredible. Yeah, she's a really good. She's a good kid. I like her a lot. I, yeah. I, 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 she's smart. She's re she's respectful, but she she also understands you got to you know bear a bit. Um, so something good <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> it's always tough when you've been around as long as I have. That 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 
editor writer relationship is a little little tender because you know <laughs> I've done everything they're doing and they don't, they shouldn't give a crap and that, that fine line is always hard to, to navigate you know. <laughs> uh, Philip, do you have any last words? Uh, no, I thank you for letting me be a part of this. I've been a big fan for a very long time, and this just continues to uh, solidify that fandom. I can't wait for cable and everything else in the future. I appreciate it, Philip. I hope we get to work together someday soon. That would be fantastic. It'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. Your stuff's really good. So, oh, thank really you so nice. much. No, that would be a, that'd be a dream, like dream come true. So, <laughs> I like. It. Are you working mostly on the Marvel Unlimited web comics right now? Uh, yeah, that's what I've been doing for about the last year. Um, we're working on a big thing that I'll run for the next two or three months, kind of uh, alongside Fall of X. But I've done a little bit of print stuff, did some Deadpool stuff this summer. So we'll okay. see kind of what happens after that. Yeah, I love working on the digital comics. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going back. To, I, I've been involved in that for over 10 years now with mm. horizontal scroll comics and, you know, the, and then the vertical scroll with webtoon. Um, yeah. it's, it's a whole format. And process. It's really fun, yeah. So, yeah, I'm hoping. Hopefully, we'll get to do something. That would be fun. That would That'd be, be awesome. Yeah. God, that would be amazing. <laughs> I'm a big fan of both of you. Thank you both for hanging out. Uh, Philip, we heard a little of your pitch just now. Where can people find you? And is there anything else you want to plug for January? Um, sure. Yeah, mainly just check out uh, X-Men Unlimited on the Marvel Unlimited app. Uh, starting next week is a really big, actually, so it'll started like two weeks ago by the time this airs, a really big storyline that we're doing with the Steves and Nick Roche. And yeah, uh, I'm just online. I guess Instagram is Philip CV Comic Art. That's really the only thing that I check anymore. I have a website that I need to update, but I'm around, so you can find me wherever. Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at my author website today and realized I got to change like four out of the five representation pieces on it, like in my on my contact page. Yes. Oh crap! I I switched agents six months ago. I haven't updated my website. <laughs> Uh, Philip, it's great to see you. Uh, Philip and Christy are coming over to watch Cocaine Bear tomorrow at my place, so we'll see you tomorrow night. Uh, ah, an, an Academy Award <laughs> movie showing. Yeah, we, we do cringe, terrible movies at my place on purpose. It's a good time. Uh, Fabian, where can people find you, and is there anything else you'd like to plug? I'm easy to find on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, my Usually my name on Instagram is Stephanie Siesta. Uh, Blue Sky is my name. Uh, my DMs are always open. Uh, so far, so good <laughs> on that front. I can always be reached and contacted uh, through my author website, which is babynusiesa.com. Um, so I'm pretty accessible and open. I have cable miniseries coming out just a couple days after this airs, uh, issue number one. And then I have a giant five fantastic four coming out uh, in February. Uh, my image comic with Kurt Busick. Uh, we're co-writing a book called Free Agents with art by Stephen Mooney. Uh, it will be coming out in the summer. No specific date yet. We thought we were going to shoot in for May, but it might be June or July right now. Uh, we're still working with Image on making the best time. And, and that'll be a fun book. It's a group of interdimensional soldiers stranded on Earth uh, without a war to fight anymore, or so they think. And, and that'll, that'll that'll be coming in the summer. I'm, a, I'm an enormous Kurt fan as well. Uh, he's someone that I have not yet met, but would love to. Uh, he's just, his, his writing, much like yours, really transformed my adolescence. Uh, so I, I love him uh, and his work very much. 
Uh, lastly, I keep my own social media private because I got kiddos, but the two of you are welcome to add me. Uh, but you can find Gray Malcolm Lane, Gray Malcolm underscore Lane on Instagram or on Discord. Uh, this episode is going to be released or this interview is going to be released with our review of Amazing Adventures 13 with Jordan Bloom. Uh, the episode coming out immediately after this uh, will be Amazing Adventures 14 with the uh, with the uh, incredible Simon Furman joining us. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much to Philip and especially Fabian today. Uh, we will see you all back here next time on Gray What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. We are set early in uh, 1972 uh, and we will be reviewing the incredible uh, gem of an issue, Amazing Adventures number 13. It is a queer thrill ride <laughs> from the early 70s, and we're going to have a really good time talking about this on today's show. I am so honored to be welcoming Mike Siriaco back to the show, as well as my friend Jordan Olson, who I recently met at the Uncanny Experience. And what a tremendous honor it is to have someone I've been a fan of for a long time here on the show, uh, Mr. Jordan Bloom. Uh, let me have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, let us know your name and pronouns. Uh, give us a little bit of where we might know you from. And my intro question for today, based on the issue later, is what's the most impressive thing you've ever seen at the circus? Any circus stories are fine here. Uh, let's begin with Jordan Bloom. Hi, Jordan. Hi, I'm Jordan Bloom. Uh, pronouns are he, him. Um, uh, Circus-wise, oh, I, my parents uh, took me to a club med in the 80s. And like to keep the kids busy, there was like a circus program. So I like rode on the back of some guy who could ride a bike while kids were hanging off of them. So that was my, I'm the most impressive thing I've seen at a circus. <laughs> what's, uh, what's, uh, if you're willing to give just a little bit of your bio, uh, where would people maybe know you from? Yeah. Um, from TV, uh, I worked on, um, I was a writer on America dad, uh, community. And then I was the co-creator and showrunner of Marvel's Modoc for Hulu. Uh, so I work in that world. Then I also work in the, the comics world. Um, where I've written um, Minor Threats is a, a creator-owned book I do with Pat Oswald at Dark Horse. Um, we're expanding. We just had our first spinoff, The Alternates, come out. And uh, beyond that, I've done some some other writing for Marvel, including an X-Men Unlimited story that I was so excited to get to do, where we got to go back to the Age of Apocalypse. We are going to be talking about that. I loved it. <laughs> uh, so good. It's great to meet you, my friend. Uh, let's go over to Jordan Olson next. Hi. Hey, what's up? What am I talking about? <laughs> uh, give me your name and pronouns, uh, where we would know you from, and then uh, the circus question. Yes, that's right. Hi, uh, Jordan Olson. Pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm in downtown Los Angeles. Um, I'm kind of all over social media as a cosplayer, cosplay artist, and co-organizer of the Hellfire Gala Walk. We just did our third show at LA Comic Con. And uh, amazing circus. So, <laughs> is Cirque du Soleil considered circus? Absolutely. 
Okay, um, it was in Las Vegas, but what's more amazing was my date. Um, I was dating a, a Methodist minister at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> 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 we were in Vegas. <laughs> Uh, excellent. It's great to see you, Jordan. Uh, the, the Uncanny Experience was so fun, and you were one of the, the, the <laughs> loveliest people. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, and then over to Mike Siriaco. Hi, Mike. It's been a long time. How are you? Hey, how are you guys doing? Mike Siriaco, he, him, sir, yes, sir. Uh, I'm a uh, journalist and comedian. Uh, most recently, I've been writing for Q Digital's uh, queer outlets, so Gay Cities, LGBTQ Nation, Queerty. I'm also an alumni of Second City, Los Angeles. I'm currently writing on a project, which I realize it comes out in 2024, but I can't really talk about it yet. But I can talk about my new comic book, Stonewall Prep, has dropped on Amazon. So check that out. You can find information about that on Instagram at Stonewall Prep, which is currently going to be developed into an animated series. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. That's a big deal, man. Congrats. Uh, do you have any circus stories? Oh, okay. So I don't remember Circus One, but I do remember my grandparents taking me to Six Flags at some point. It was so long ago that the Batman with Vicky Vale came out. I remember that because they had one of those stunt shows and they are throwing like bladed throwing cards at her. And all of a sudden, the um, it's just amazing because I'm like, oh my God, that blood looks so real. And then suddenly they stop the show and bring her off. And that's when I realized, oh, I just saw a woman's face get severed. <laughs> it's one of those things oh that was just like, as a kid, I was just like, oh, that was terrible and kind of awesome. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's almost as scary as the Methodist minister. Uh, <laughs> lastly, uh, <laughs> lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, as well as a documentarian and the current host of this show. I have a surprisingly long relationship for the circus, given how much I hate it. I've been to a lot of Cirque du Soleil shows, and I've had some weird experiences at a few. Uh, I, I don't like clowns very much. Uh, but when I was a kid, I was kind of obsessed with the idea of the circus because I was so into animals. And um, one of the first comic book pitches I ever wrote, which I got fully, uh, the art was fully done on it, but it never got published, was a, a serialized uh, story I wrote in my 20s called The Tales of the Railroad Circus. Uh, so I have a lot of uh, a lot of fond memories of this, but I, uh, I find circuses relatively inhumane and kind of boring. I am, however, very impressed by trapeze artists. They scare the shit out of me, but they're really, really incredible. We saw a show in Puerto Vallarta last year called Erotic, uh, which was kind of like celebrating the nude form while doing trapeze basically and it was amazing uh so i uh i have an odd relationship i do however love the circus of crime uh the uh the marvel characters <laughs> they're, they're fantastic princess python uh is uh is one of my favorites of all time uh we're gonna start with uh with mr jordan bloom i would love to hear some of your origin story if you are willing to share uh including kind of your time as a comics fan i know you are one of those creators that uh, again, I was the handbooks guy, but you've got like an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of Marvel history. Uh, tell me a little of your origin, if you would. Yeah, sure. Huh? I just saw my son sneak in here. You gotta get out of here. Oh, good <laughs> job. He built a Batman Lego. This is great podcast content. Good job, buddy. There's okay. a there's right. an, <laughs> there's an easy edit function. We're good. Okay. Uh, my origin as a Marvel fan uh, goes all the way back to. Um, uh, my dad uh, learned to speak English from from reading comics, and it was kind of just immediately passed down 
to me and I had him in my height, my height chair. There's like pictures of me, uh, you know, with like a captain America or something. So it was just a constant, I guess, in my life. And, um, you know, I was a Superman fan and I think I kind of like came in the way most people do. And then you're looking for that next thing, you know, how do I, how do I take the fandom up a level? And then I read, I think a classic X-Men, uh, that was like a reprint of the one after Gene dies where, Cyclops takes you through the entire Silver Age. And I was like, this is so dense. I don't understand any of it. And I have to. And I feel <laughs> like becoming an X-Men fan was about like excavating continuity and making sense of this, where I was like, uh, wait, Psylocke's a ninja now? How do I don't understand anything? <laughs> uh, and I loved it. it. Like that spoke to me. I was uh one of the only Jewish kids in my town growing up so the kind of uh outsider other element really spoke to me as well and i lived in westchester and in uh near north salem and south salem so i was always looking for salem center which i don't think exists uh but i always felt like the x-men were right there so that's kind of my x-men origin and then uh you know beyond that just uh i'm a wednesday warrior i go go every week and it's uh, it hasn't stopped. It's only uh, kind of grown over the years. So a lot of fans, even those that get really into it and do want to go back, they'll go back to Claremont. They don't go back to Silver Age, which is kind of one of the reasons I did this show. Right. Like we we've been doing hundreds of episodes about the Silver Age. Uh, what was it about the Silver Age for you that inspired you? I think you and I are similar in that there's something so campy and fun about putting together uh, the way a character tracks over time, uh, you know, if you get to use the porcupine, fabulous. <laughs> There's so much fun in that. Well, it's funny. I think like any X-Men fan will say like the Silver Age, not the best, right? It, the, the Some of those, those X-Men stories, but there's important things. The foundations are laid. The juggernaut shows up, Sentinels. Cyclops has a brother. Who's this guy? You know, like there's important things that you have to kind of, get before, that I think unlock things in, in the Claremont era. And obviously that's where it picks up and that's where the X-Men become the X-Men. But um, I was always, um, I was an X-Factor fan, I think almost first, the, the original X-Factor. That was my favorite book when I was a, a little kid. It was like the first back issue I ever saved my money up was for X-Factor number one. So I have this affinity for the original X-Men. I think going back and discovering some of the silver age stuff it's like oh i get to see these characters as kids and and see where they started uh you know before we get metal wings and and you know baby cables and stuff so it was uh <laughs> to me that's that's what the, the silver age services i guess so uh drawing upon that kind of continuity question your work with Patton on uh modok was so delightfully fun I, uh, you, you somehow captured learning later that you were the community guy made sense to me because I loved that show, but you somehow captured this body horror slash office comedy vibe. That's very difficult to <laughs> capture. You. And Modoc is amazing, uh, in, in your hands, both in the show and in the book. Where did your love of this character start? And, uh, tell me a little about your, uh, your work there. Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with Kirby. It's that design. There's nothing else like it in comics. And uh, it, he, to me, like represents what comics are, which are like these super absurd big ideas that can be grounded with humanity and make you care. And, um, you know, he's he's been a joke. He's been a serious villain. He's been all these different things. And, um, you know, obviously the show, 
they wanted something, you know, in the vein of like an adult comedy. So we leaned more into the comedy there and, you know, had a blast doing it. Um, and I love supervillains and I love, you know, what the life of a supervillain, a lot of the stuff I've explored in Minor Threats as well. Um, but it was fun to explore the comedy side and yes, the, the body horror side and more so when we got to do the comic book, um, we wanted to write the 616 Marvel version. And I think people were expecting us to just do more of the same from the show, but um, we wanted to do a different version. I think I've said this a few times, like Modoc to me is like, like a Batman kind of character where you can, he can be adapted in various ways. He works as a comedic foil and he works as body horror monster, you know, and we got to play with, I think both versions. And obviously, you know, there's always a little humor that kind of follows him, but um, to me, we got to really explore uh, all these different versions and how they kind of all make sense as one character. Uh, your work with Patton, how did you guys first connect? Uh, when I was on American Dad, um, I had a the first show I ever created was with one of the showrunners, and we were um, we were about to pitch it, and we were like, we should figure out the voices of this main character, and it just like I've been a fan of his forever. I when I first met him, it was super awkward. I was like you got me through Oklahoma. And he's like, what? And I was like, oh, sorry. I listened to your albums when I drove out from New York to California. And that was the most boring, if, sorry to anyone from Oklahoma, most boring, boring place to drive <laughs> through. And your, your comedy got me through it. Like I, I, I was such a fan. And the thing we were developing had kind of superhero elements to it. And he got it right away. There was no, you know, having to describe what Kirby Crackle is. It was immediate. And he and I just kind of hit it off and became good friends, you know, from there on. We run into each other comic stores and stuff and then when modok um came about when i met with marvel about doing the show um it was like oh that's the obvious voice and and then he and i developed it together and, and, and built the show out from there it's so fun i feel like i have a weird kinship with Patton, although i've never met him i made a true crime documentary and i've seen the show about his wife making the true crime documentary and there was something that like really resonated with my journey in doing that uh, I would love to meet him someday. That was that was a really impressive, uh, impressive story that he told about her. Yeah, well, I'll say this. I've worked in this town for a long time, and rarely are people what you hope they would be. And Patton is 100% who he is, the stage persona, all that. He's just a genuine, real person and who loves comics more than anyone I know. He's, like, hilarious, but also a little sleepy. <laughs> um uh jordan olson i would love to hear a little bit of your uh your origin story as well if you'd share um let's see uh i i didn't know about comics until i came to the u.s in 84 and um met some kids from church and there's this uh two brothers that had a collection and were just showing it to us and uh, that's when I first saw Storm, and I don't remember what issue it was, but just I think I fell in love with the art. I've always loved different uh, expressions of art ever since I was a kid. And so it was a design that attracted me first. And then uh, the animated series came about, but I was already in my 20s when that uh, when the show came out. So I was trying to be the cool kid in the club scene. So it was not cool to be liking animation when you're in your early 20s. You're supposed to be partying. So <laughs> it was delayed. I think my uh, falling into 
the X-Men fandom was delayed for me, not until just a few years ago when um, I have to drop the name, Michelle Waffle. I saw her Emma Frost Hellfire Gala uh, pictures from San Diego Comic-Con. And I was like, what is this girl? And so she told me and I saw all the designs and then I got hooked coming back into X-Men through the Hellfire Gala. And as you can see in my background right now, it's the Krakoan Gateway. And nice. <laughs> Love. I was I wanted to comment, but I was like, oh my God, I just noticed this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my Christmas tree. Um, no, it's it, it was the backdrop that I had at my booth at LA Comic Con. And I got hooked on the the sci-fi uh glamour, but still, you know, X-Men fighting injustice storyline and a little bit sad that the Krakoan era is ending mm. but I'm excited to see what's next um uh Chad you were telling me about um <laughs> the uncanny experience and being there at that mansion was my um a childhood fantasy fulfilled you know thinking of being that student walking around in Charles Xavier Mansion, but uh, for those who don't know, I was uh, dressed up as Lalandra one night, <laughs> and I was just loopy, and I just kept saying, "Charles, Charles, where Charles, are you? Charles, where are you?" I was crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that's my um, my my uh, falling back into X Men is about the art, the glamour, and I'm also creating one of Russell Dodderman's design for um, Emma Frost um, for WonderCon. So Fantastic. I'm, I'm addicted to the Hellfire Gala. I'm sorry. I know it's yeah. <laughs> that night. That night that you were Lilandra, I was a 44-year-old man who went to a Hellfire Gala party <laughs> where my friend Alicia Wilder performed a strip tease or a burlesque number as Celine. Uh, and uh, we uh, then went upstairs to a Dazzler rock concert with Chris yeah. Claremont and like Lenore Zan hanging out in the room with us. It was a great time, man. Yeah. For and those Lenore of you that are considering the Uncanny Experience, it's a pretty fun adventure. Yeah, and Lenore sang, right? Mm -hmm. She sang a song. Yeah, yeah, she sang a she sang a country song like a Patsy Cline as Rogue on the stage. It was it was great. Oh, it was real that's fun. Such an experience. It was great. <laughs> I got to, to moderate the voice actor panel that next day as well, which was just such a cool thing. It was it was really fun. The the little nerdy boy in me was a very happy that weekend. Uh, uh, Mike, do you want to share a little of your origin story as well? Sure. Um, uh, I was first exposed to comics. God, when I was little. Probably the He-Man. Remember when they'd come with the little mini comics? So I loved He-Man. It was actually the origin of my loincloth fetish that I would get as an adult. <laughs> uh, then my first actual comics, my friends, my father's best friend was a huge comic book fan. So around the death of Superman, he had gotten me all of those. So the like actual death of Superman comic, then the four origins from the different titles. So you had Steel and Eradicator. And of course, I fell in love with Superboy before I even knew I was gay. I knew I liked reading Superboy. <laughs> Again, once he went to, uh, I think it was Honolulu. That was his city. He used to surf in a lot of <laughs> Superman-themed Speedos, so I loved that as well. Uh, but my origin with um, X-Men, uh, much like you guys, the cartoon, I remember because I'd grow up with, like, you know, Superman and Wonder Woman. Like, their names were exactly what they were. I'm like, Gambit rogue it doesn't quite like tell you what it is which made it kind of interesting and to this day i remember the first comic book i ever bought myself 
X-Men Volume 2, number 24. It's the one where, like, Rogue and Gambit, who are my favorites to this day, were about to kiss. And I was like, I need to own this. And the biggest tease of that issue was Rogue's about to tell Gambit on their date what her name is. And Gambit's like, Sherry, you don't need to tell me that. And it was never followed up. Eventually, they gave her, like, Anna Marie Raven or whatever. But it's one of those things I want, if I ever meet Fabian, I want to be like, was there a plan? Were you just fucking with us? What was your idea? Oh, and then, um, hopping on to what you were saying, Jordan, um, I don't know if you saw, talking about Baby Cable, I just saw today they're releasing a Goblin Queen action figure, and the accessory they give it is swaddled Nathan Christopher Summers. I love because they would always have the swaddled baby, like, in the middle of battles. They would just be holding this. Ba- I like that that's her, like, accessory. Yeah, Jean <laughs> would keep it her up. I was just like, something. yeah, I want to get that. She's holding the baby. <laughs> I saw it. Not only that, you can now have baby Cable meet baby Nightcrawler because they made a, a Nightcrawler baby accessory oh. for Mystique. <laughs> now we're, like, one step closer to, like, X-Men Muppet babies. We have I no- am so happy that they went back to the original origin where it's like, yeah, I'm your dad. Yes. <laughs> I was uh, like, finally. I fuck just you, did computer. The- we got Thorgen. I just did an Opal Tanaka episode with Justin Park, and we talked about that time Iceman was, like, Christmas shopping with baby Nathan and, like, also going on a date with Opal. He's just pushing the baby stroller around, like, like stack of packages. <laughs> it was a pretty fun time. Uh, okay, Jordan Bloom. It's really interesting when I'm prepping for interviews. I rewatched Modoc. I reread all of your Marvel work and looked up some of your stuff and watched some of your interviews. When I watch, uh, when I read someone front to back in that way, you see what they are capable of and what they are doing, but you have a very diverse skill set. Your Modoc work versus your Spider-Bot work versus like your really fun Pete Spider-Man and like uh, Major League Venom stuff, right? Like those those are all great. But the the shift in tone when it comes to a world without X is very, very significant. Uh, it's almost, it doesn't feel like the same guy writing it. And I suppose that's a tremendous compliment because that means you've got a lot of versatility. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. But uh, I, m- mostly what I'm really interested in here is I would love to hear your one-two punch on Professor Charles Xavier because I know you have some thoughts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, just with the story stuff, um, I am someone who loves all movies, all kinds of content. Like, I'm a genre guy. And so what is the genre? What are the conventions? What's, you know, a lot of the Marvel stuff you're kind of assigned to, like, do you want to do spider bots? And I'm like, well, let me write something that my sons will be excited about, you know, versus do you want to write X-Men? Where I'm like, uh, yeah, I've had one, you know, uh, up, up the sleeve for quite some time. So I don't know. I think I it's always just looking at, like, what kind of story am I telling? Who is this for? And what's the most fun I can have doing it is kind of my approach. So uh, for, for the X-Men one, that was... Um, that actually was Jordan White coming to me. Um, he came to me, it was during the pandemic, and he's like, do you want to do an X-Men annual? And I was like, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a dream of mine, absolutely. So we were all set to do it. It was going to be, what do they do with the X-Babies during um, Krakoa when they get the rights back from Mojo? So they end up getting the X-Babies, and it was going to be an adventures and babysitting thing with Boom Boom. And oh wow, I love this story so much. Yeah. And um, you know, there was all this stuff going on with paper shortage and stuff where they started cutting things. So that was a it was it was dead, and I was heartbroken because it was like X-Men dangled in front of me and then taken away. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he came to me and he goes, Okay, I have another story, uh, you know, I'd love for you to pitch on. We want to do It's a Wonderful Life with Professor X. 
I was like, that's fascinating because that's a character I've never thought about where I'm like, I want to write the X-Men. I got to write Professor X. Like he's so far down the list. You know, I appreciate him in, in what he is to the mythos. And I find him to be a very flawed character, which makes him interesting. You know, I think he's the guy who's presented as the grandfather of the X-Men, but he's a guy who's a master manipulator who has really betrayed trust with his students, but is also there to kind of, uh, you know, pick up the pieces and try and fix things. And I think he's a complicated character is, is I guess my take on him, but I grew up with the age of apocalypse being one of my all time favorite stories. Like I fell for it, like hook, line and sinker when they put out that little ash can, that's like, by the way, all the X-Men are dead and it's over. And I was like, they're canceling X-Men, like not having, having zero awareness of marketing and that, you know, that it's their number one book. I just bought it. And then they put out that ash can that tease the age of apocalypse and they're like wolverine doesn't have a hand and cyclops is missing an eye and you know magneto's leading them like what's going on it was so fun to read and i, I bought every single issue of of that entire run so the idea of going back all the, and doing all the characters this, it's a wonderful life all the characters they, with short hair had long hair all the characters with long hair had short hair it was crazy <laughs> Iceman was missing a mouth like it was nuts uh so, so yeah getting to revisit that was great and, it, it, and I thought um what was interesting was uh Krakoa the Krakoa era had been going for a while and um Xavier won in that moment this was kind of before Inferno or right after uh and it was like well what 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 can I do that he's going to experience and reevaluate himself like he has to be at a low point so how do you give xavier a low point if krakoa is thriving and i kind of led me to this idea of like oh he's always been a little bit of an egomaniac and he always kind of wants a little credit and he likes being this leader what if he succeeds in creating this this um you know mutant uh country that he himself they have no use for him anymore he just kind of sits he's you know, hopes taking over the resurrection and all these things are happening that like he brought them, he helped guide them to this and now he's not necessary. So that let's, and then he's also lost the two friends that he had who built this thing with him with, with Mora and, and Magneto, I think had just died at the time. So it was a really interesting thing of like the dream happened. No one's here to share it with you that you built it with. And no one really has any use for you in a place where mutants are thriving. Um, and even, start even him as there. You're, and then, even as you're continuing, the assignment of It's a Wonderful Life, the, the premise of that movie is what does the world look like without me? And you right. remember there's already a world that has no Charles in it. That's a that's a brilliant segue, man. It's, it's good. Keep going. Yeah. So then, yeah, it was fun to take him over there and see, oh, I have something left to give, you know, when I see what this world looks like without me. And I'm a teacher. And that's kind of, to me, the most interesting version of Xavier that I always like is that he may be a flawed person, but he's ultimately started this to help teach these kids how to use their powers. And this is a world that never had teachers. So people don't know how to use their powers. And, um, and that's what he can offer this version of the X-Men. And, and also to take a lot of characters like Laura and people who were created after Age of Apocalypse and see what they would be like in this world and, and bring in pieces of Krakoa as well. Uh, and flip it. So that was kind of the fun of, of that. And, you know, it, it led me to to appreciate Xavier a little more and, um, you know, dig back and see, like, what do I like about the characters? Where, where are the moments that I, I kind of cheer that character on? 
Do you enjoy writing in the uh, unlimited or infinity format where it's the kind of long scrolling panels and you get what, six pages per run, basically kind of long and stretched out? You have to kind of relearn everything. I, I was able to do a bunch of these little spider bot ones and kind of figure it out um, before I did X-Men. But it is like there's no page turn, you know, so your page turn is information at the bottom of the panel you're telling versus, you know, uh, panels leading up. So you kind of have to think in that way. So it's a lot of like, oh, well, we can track this character running through here and here. And like, how do you lean into that medium of storytelling that is very different from traditional comics? Uh, what uh, what would you consider your all-time favorite X-Men and least favorite X-Men story to be? Uh, all-time favorite. Jordan and Mike, uh, I'm going to ask you the same question so you can think about it. Okay, I got to go with, um, I love all the, the Grant stuff. It, I, can I just put it all the Grant run? Absolutely. That okay? <laughs> uh, that's what I go back to the most. Um, I also, I know he's not the most uh, popular writer uh, right now and has very questionable uh, I don't even call it politics uh, but the Peter David X Factor stuff really hit me when I was a kid and I go back to that uh, a lot too some of it's aged well some of it has not uh, but um, and least favorite you know Draco sucks but everyone says that uh, I don't know <laughs> I think you know what there's just some for me, it's anytime we go back to Claremont stuff for like the 500th time instead of trying to introduce a new idea to move stuff forward. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair and also safe. I realize when I ask questions like that after I go, oh, like no one's going to want to call out like another creator that they know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jordan, uh, also, do you have any uh, comments on your favorite X-Men stories? Uh, favorite X-Men stories, like I said, I'm hooked on um, Hellfire Gala and I just did a a uh, deep dive of the first quote-unquote Hellfire Gala and accidentally bought the expanded edition on uh, uh, Amazon Prime Kindle. And it it took, um, there's a portion there from the Marauders where it looks at the Hellfire Club's annual gala. And um, uh, what was his face? Sebastian, uh, Sebastian Shaw. Um, uh, had to ask Lourdes to take them to where Emma was being attacked by the Sentinel, which to me parallels what happened in this last Hellfire Gala where the Gala was attacked by Nimrod. Sure. Um, so, so there's these parallels that I'm seeing because Lourdes said in that, um, uh, the, uh, what is it? It's called uh, something, a look at the past. In the Gala, she said that she's not sure if she can take that many people to whichever destination. And in this last Hellfire Gala, that's the exact same, similar thing that she told Emma Frost when Emma Frost told everyone to link hands and she was going to transport them. And guess where they ended up at? They ended up at the basement of the old Hellfire Club. So the Hellfire Gala is done, but does it have to be at in Krakoa? I'm just saying that it could be a leather themed party in the old Hellfire Club. I'm all for that. You love a fashion moment, is what I'm hearing more than I anything. I do. <laughs> and I came from I came from the club scene, and 
even in my uh, 40s, I was working in this Hollywood as a VIP hostess in, in this LGBT clubs. So there's always a fashion moment, regardless of how sad our lives are. There's always a fashion moment. So yeah, I support the yes. Can I ask you a question? Who in your mind are, is the best dressed X character and worst Ooh. dressed X character? Best dressed uh, X character. Um, and I said this in another podcast. I don't like Jean Grey, but she's always rocked the gala looks. Although, mm. although in um, this last one, um, Dazzler, even though she died right away, <laughs> <laughs> was amazing. Um, Daughterman's design of her, I had to make that right away and I did it. And it was like, oh, it's just so God. stupid. It's amazing. So yeah, um, Dazzler and Jean Grey, I guess. That crushed up mirror ball look is something, man. Yes. It's pretty <laughs> impressive. I like it a lot. Morbid. Uh, Jordan Bloom, now I want to hear your answers to that same question. Ooh, best dressed. Uh, let's see. I'll 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 step out of Krakow because everyone looks fabulous at the at the uh, Hellfire Gala. Um, I think for costumes, I love um, eighties boom boom. It's just Madonna clothes. <laughs> it's just eighties Madonna stuff. But I love eighties boom boom costume. Um, I like Havoc's like jacket headgear nineties look. They're very era specific each one of these well they're not fashion, good by today's standards is, right? but they hold a place in my heart for being of the moment um and then this i is, think worse. this is magneto's like big am on his long purple robe look yeah <laughs> like era <laughs> that one's rough i think uh i think anytime nightcrawler changes his costume and it's not the cockroach one is the worst <laughs> uh, do you remember goatee nightcrawler that was that was a not a fan of Pirate Nightcrawler. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I would ask your favorite costume, but I think you would just say Kazar. I mean, that's up there. But if we're doing um the last Hellfire Gala, I loved Iceman's look with the untucked white shirt because it gave you like risky business vibes, especially because <laughs> the pants were blue. So I thought it was just his bare legs. I was like, that, that's what I'm going to cosplay. So for the next Hellfire Gala, I'm doing that, but pantsless. Just, <laughs> just like spray paint my legs. Um, I, yes, of course, Kazar. I also had a thing for when, um, Havoc and Cyclops would be fighting and they can't, cause their powers, they'd absorb them, but their costumes wouldn't. So they'd just be shredded and they would just like have the little bits of their costume. At that point, they were just brothers fighting. I don't know what I love about that. They did it in Genosha. They did it in like, um, I think the Inferno, they just had this whole trope that like they were just like middle schoolers. They would just fight each other. I know it was kind of like that, too. Or like um, when Havoc was Goblin Queen uh, kid, or Goblin Prince. And like it was just everything just ripped up. And like he was he was Maddie's consort. You know what I'm talking about, right? And yeah. Loincloth and cape. Yes, that's <laughs> that's all, that's all I need for cosplay. Uh, in oh, wait, wait. Uh, the cosplay I did this year, I did Rogue. Savage Land Rogue. Mm -hmm. oh. Another one where um, I'd explain this to all my friends because they're like, you're rogue. I'm like, okay, it's a very specific thing. After the X-Men faked their deaths and they were living in Australia, she ended up in the Savage Land, which is like 
you know, uh, Land of the Lost, and she didn't have her powers, so she didn't need that, and she was shredded. And also Magneto was there, and he was, like, not an old man, and they just fucked for months. <laughs> that was, like, my <laughs> elevator pitch of what my thing was. <laughs> They're like, it's just excuse for you to, like, not wear clothes. Exactly. <laughs> I love the body confidence from both of you. (laughs) I've missed all these issues. Damn it. I have to go. There's so much. There's so much content. Uh, uh, Jordan Bloom, there is a uh, there is a certain presence of X-Men fans online. Uh, I would love to hear as a writer who's done, you know, MODOK and Spider-Bot and Spider-Man stuff uh, and interacting with fans online versus writing a world without X and then interacting with the X-Men community online. Now, I know you also have done uh, Cerebro, as have I. And I know a lot of people have probably interacted with you about your Skids episode as well. What's uh, what's your take on uh, on X-Fandom online? I mean, I love it. It's I think X-Men fans are the best fans. And I think the thing is they're so protective of their one character who all of the X universe revolves around. And how dare you make any decision that might be, it was funny. Uh, you know, skids doesn't really have the fan base that <laughs> I, I'd hope she would. Um, but the, the people who came down on me the most, not came down on me, but when it was announced that Gwenpool was going to be in MODOK, it was, a, it was like, what are your plans for our daughter? You know, like, uh, like <laughs> there was like sitting down with, with, with the dad of, of the date you were taking to the prom and they were like grilling me. And I was like, just read the issue. I think we honor her correctly. You know, but there was a lot of pressure of like, don't fuck her up. Do not do anything. Like they were ready to pounce and then they were so happy. Uh, <laughs> and that was a relief. And I was very excited that that fan base was, signing off on our take on the character so it's intensity but i get it um you know cyclops is my guy very protective of scott and uh i understand it uh a few weeks before this is released to end the year on my show in 2023 we just hosted the roast of scott summers uh Mm -hmm. so if you if you're looking for some laughs but you gotta you gotta have a you, you got to go in uh, be, uh, willing to hear him torn to shreds. <laughs> well, I love Scott because he's the biggest mess in comics. So, yes, I yeah. I would love to hear him. Torn we made fun of him and his family. Uh, it, it was really fun. I cracked one joke where I talked about everyone thinks you're boring, but they don't know about your rich interior world. You know, the one where you cheat on your wife with other telepaths. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty good time. Um, the X-Men fandom can be pretty toxic as well. So I'm pleased to, to know that you've had a positive experience there. That's a good thing. What uh, are all of your takes on Beast? Beast is a character who is in large part the heir of Xavier, I would argue, in a way that Cyclops is not. Uh, Beast is Henry Kissinger. Beast is a lot of things. We're going to read 70s Beast today. Uh, in the modern comics, he's war criminal Beast. <laughs> There's a, do you? Uh, what are your thoughts on Beast? And do you have a favorite era of this character? For me? And any of any, oh. uh, All of you. I, I um, you know, I'm very curious how they wrap this story up. But... Uh, you know, sometimes fans don't, they want their character to stay the same and and never change and never grow and just be this consistent thing from when they were a kid. And I sort of love when a character goes down a villainous path or, you know, does something that, you know, like where we, where B started and where he got to now makes sense to me from a storytelling point of view. And I loved it when Cyclops, you know, came out of, uh, he killed Xavier and came out of Avengers vs. X and was like, 
they were calling him a terrorist. And I was like, this is such an interesting place to take the character. So I don't mind when the, you know, these things happen to these characters. Like you're not rooting for beast certainly, (laughs) but he's making a really good foil for the rest of X-Force, I think right now. And, um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, can the character be redeemed? Are they going to have a clone who has no, none of these memories? I don't know what their, their plans are, but it's interesting that he's like fun loving Avengers, Wonder Man's best friend beast. And he's also like, uh, like you said, the Kissinger of mutant kind. So uh, I think, I, you know, different I takes like- work. I like the storytelling that's happening and I, and I trust Jason Aaron. Uh, it was, oh my God. I just said Jason Aaron. I trust Benjamin Percy to guide us in the <laughs> right direction. I mean, that's a fair comparison that you're right. Like <laughs> that, was a, that was a fair slip. Uh, but uh, Beast is, is compelling because he's often right, even though he's doing horrible, horrible things uh, as he's making it happen. It's really interesting watching him become this version. This is the guy that, uh, you know, what, a little over 10 years ago, the Watcher called him a dick. So there's, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's been on a journey. Uh, Jordan Olson, are you a Beast fan? See, I, I don't really know Beast, but um, hairy, burly guys in underwear... <laughs> I like bears. Um, oh, you and Mike are going to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> Got to read that early X Factor where they turned him back into his human form before he was like blue, and he's he's shirtless, full chest. He's he's in his full bear mode there before he's even mutated. <laughs> yeah, he, he's a handsome fella. Yeah, I I don't know much about him, but that's how I like the guys. Um, I I don't like guys who have you know. A lot of brain power. <laughs> anyway, what? What am I talking about? <laughs> uh, Mike, are you a beast fan? I wouldn't say so much of a fan, but I did like as a kid that he was always quoting like Shakespeare. To this day, I know, um, I think it's a quote from Merchant of Venice, nothing stings sharper than a serpent's tooth in an ungrateful child. I really just casually <laughs> says that to Jubilee at some point. I'm just like, that's fascinating. I also love the way he moved as a little kid. I taught myself how to you know the way like he moved like a gorilla as a kid. I taught myself and to this day, like as a wrestler, I'm a competitive wrestler. Sometimes I'll move like that. Um, I think my favorite thing about him, though, I wouldn't say I'm a fan. Like I read X-Men, the like blue team X-Men for Gambit and Rogue. Um, so he was just always there. But one of the things I love, remember um, before they're fighting on the blue area of the moon, the like last stand of like Phoenix and they're all fighting. I love when uh, Xavier invokes whatever the thing of ah, la la da da. And pretty much he's like, and I did it in all of her names. I love Beast of Me. He was like, you did it in all our names. I do like that he called out like, you just sent us into a death duel without consulting us. I do love, he's the only one that calls it out. He's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? He does that little in Utopia too, where like Cyclops, do, I mean, Cyclops did what he did for the people, but like, and Beast was just like, you're putting a lot on us. You're putting a lot on me. So I'm going to set up our issue for today. Now, you guys are not familiar with this yet because we're recording a month ahead of time. But the uh, the episodes immediately previous uh, this include an interview with Steve Englehart, who wrote this particular issue. Uh, Spencer Ackerman, uh, uh, Jordan White are, are among the guests as well. So there's been a lot of really cool discussion on the show, but we haven't released it yet. Setting up this era of comics. Uh, one of the points I make, uh, the, the kids that the 1960s books were being written for are now the kids in this era who are being drafted into Vietnam. The world has changed vastly in the era since the Silver Age. 
the Comics Code Authority is allowing more monster stories now. Uh, a lot of the Marvel writers are on a much a uh, longer leash. Roy Thomas kind of had the edict of just write and make it good. Uh, a lot of them were using drugs. There's a lot of really crazy things happening in the comics all over the books right now. And this is kind of an experimental title and one of Steve Englehart's uh, first professional storytelling gigs uh, of taking the beast who at this time the X-Men book had been canceled. So this is still a couple years before Giant Size X-Men comes out. So we're about to get Storm and Wolverine, etc. But this is kind of a werewolf story. The beast has been trapped in the body of a monster and he's trying to work his way out. But you also see themes changing. The women are allowed to be sexy now. There is uh, women criminals now. That Linda Donaldson, who is in this issue, committed a murder a couple episodes ago. Oh, by the way, the guy she supposedly murdered is Artie Maddox's dad from X Factor. So, Jordan Bloom, there's a fact for you. Oh, <laughs> oh, I was going to call that out. You beat me to it. <laughs> We talked we talked about it. Uh, so this is a really different era. Uh, people questioning the government, right? He's at this genetic research facility that's based on the Rand Corporation from real life and <laughs> kind of looking at everything and you're just like, okay, mm, what was it like for the three of you to delve into this kind of old continuity? Uh, Jordan Bloom, I'm going to guess you're like me in that um, uh, you probably read this before, but not for a long time, or maybe it was your first time. Uh, tell I me read this thought. issue. I got the one where he transforms. I, I own that somewhere. Um, but this is the law. This to me is more the lost years than the Silver Age because it's the X Men are in reprints, right? Yeah. So they're randomly popping up in other people's books, and you know some of the characters don't feel like the way they did, like you know Blob. I think some of the the evil mutants are just like. I don't know, use these guys. They're free, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I don't know. It's it's no one goes back to these stories. They're really these feel like the lost X-Men years to me. And it was interesting to see that, like, they were still finding uses for mutants, even though their book was kind of just reprints. Gray Malkin Lane uh, in late 2023 and all through 2024 is going to be spending all our time in that particular era. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to unearth. Uh, uh, Jordan Olson, what was it like for you to pick up this book? It's, it's crazy, funny. right? <laughs> so it's funny you said that the writers were on drugs because that's what it seemed like. <laughs> I, I've never really taken drugs, but I've been around people who have and it. Um, I compared it to like Twilight Zone. Uh, it was very Twilight Zone-ish, amazing stories, you know, all of all of those. Uh, I guess I am the oldest oldest one in this group, but it was it was um, uh, fantastical. There you go. I think that's a word that they used at that time too. It's things that they could have done, and, and I know we're going to go into this a little bit later, but they could have done things differently like how to get the diamond how to you know how to do this how to do that but for comic books like how you how you set it up who this is written for it had to be amazing like that it had to have a sense of danger and difficulty but compared to the Krakoan era it's like what um let me yeah it's a, it's a 50 years ago man uh let me set this story up very quickly and then i want to talk about a couple themes before we do our review so previously in amazing adventures on gray malkin lane hank mccoy left the x-men to take a job at the brand corporation agreeing to make a serum that's a lot like mutant growth hormone 
they want hor uh, humans to get powers temporarily. Beast ended up drinking it himself, and it turned him into a monster because the Nazi KKK secret empire guys that are infiltrating the United States government at the time are after this serum. So now he's gray and furry. Uh, he's kind of scary. He's flipping out. He's designed a mask and uh, like wig and gloves to wear in case he needs to like blend in into public. He also was dating and or fucking his lab assistant, Linda Donaldson, who is a member of the Secret Empire. Uh, he fought Iron Man, and at the end of our last issue, he believed Iron Man was dead, but outside, Mastermind had cast an illusion. Uh, so as a quick recap, just as we're jumping into themes, uh, this issue is from July 1972. It's by Steve Englehart with art by Tom Sutton and Frank Giacoya. The art is wonderful in this issue. It feels like an episode of Scooby-Doo, just front to back. It's really fun. <laughs> uh, John Costanza is on letters, and Stan Lee is the editor. I want to introduce two characters or themes before we start, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants was originally that group with Magneto. He reformed them in the Avengers crossover and stormed the United Nations. And then it's kind of hasn't been used for a little while. So this is the one time that Mastermind leads the group and his group members are Blob and Eunice. Uh, I also want to recap. We've been there on my show before, but Blob grew up in a circus. Eunice is a costumed wrestler. And uh, the first time Eunice appears is the first time we see Beast really lose his morals because he designs a gun that makes Eunice's powers malfunction and it's going to kill him unless Eunice surrenders. So we talk about this on my show. That's also the point when they time travel into the future in that issue. Uh, a little while later, the character Lucifer mind controls Blob and Eunice into teaming up to dress as the X-Men and rob banks together. This is an old Silver Age story. And there's very much a, like, romantic vibe. These two are, like, they go from being, like, buddies to, like, hanging out in a tent together and, like, wanting to be together all the time. And it's very cute. This uh, this issue today makes it, uh, it solidifies their relationship even more. Uh, and then we get to the stuff later where, like, Eunice's powers are malfunctioning. They're fighting the Hulk and the Blob like sits down in traffic to cry because his boyfriend died. We we've talked about this on uh, the Blob trial on my show. There's a lot of content that covers these two in the future. Uh, so let me hear your thoughts on this incarnation of the uh, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants before we open the book up. Uh, Jordan Bloom, do you want to take this one first? Doesn't go well uh, for, <laughs> for Mastermind uh, Magneto. He is not. Um, I thought it was fun. Obviously, it's like yeah, it's like the goofiest members, you know, minus Toad. <laughs> trying to go off on their own and fail, you know, and I think that's that's a lot of fun. And um, you know, Mastermind is absolutely like the first mutant incel, and he kind of comes off this way in this one where it's like, uh, yeah, you have all this amazing power, but you're just a weak-minded person, and like that's being the moral of of his defeat uh, is great because he'll go on to just be a real shit heel for the rest of uh, his time uh, in X Men. Uh, 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 Mike Siriaco, do you have uh, thoughts on this? I love Brotherhood um, issues. I always love. I always love any of the issues where the superheroes have their equal and opposite counterparts. Frightful Four issues, Legion of Doom. Like I just always love them. Sinister Six, which I love. It's just one teenager. And you got six adults that have to run a train on him, and they always lose. So I do <laughs> love stuff like this. Um, I'm pretty sure Unis. I think he's Italian. For some, I feel at some place I wrote so it's like one of my Italian American boys who's a wrestler, and I wasn't his daughter an acolyte. 
Am I crazy? Uh, or the one with the yes. force field. It's that's never daughter? been confirmed that it was his daughter. It's also been maybe his sister or cousin, but it's never quite been confirmed. Because I've always been confused because ages are weird. So I'm just like, is he old enough to have a daughter that old? Do we just pretend? As soon like they go from 13, and as soon as they're adults, they're just adults. I was they, uh, the one for they have like, the same last name, and they both have force field powers. So, uh, yeah, this... just vaguely that. I also love the blob is so gay here, but once you get to um, God, what was it um in the early 90s, like around the time that Mystique's uh freedom force ends up like in Iraq and all that? I remember at one point the blob was really homophobic against Avalanche and Pyro, which I find so hypocritical since he's so gay with Unis. He's also uh, extraordinarily sexist. Uh, with Unis as well, Unis has been used a lot in the modern comics. Not the character himself, but his power set. Like Rasputin, the traveling girl, has like Unis's powers as one of her uh, power sets. Uh, they talk a lot, like Sinister talks about it a lot, but we never see him on battle very much. Uh, the theme here, from a writing standpoint, being the Beast is wrestling with his identity. Is he a man or a monster? And this is the issue where he's teaming up with the evil guys who want to steal a diamond, which is what makes them evil, right? So, like, he he chooses he chooses the evil government billionaire genetic research facility instead of the gay guys trying to steal a diamond. And that makes him good, not evil. We'll get there <laughs> when we when we get there. The second thing I want to introduce quickly, Marvel had a long run of romance comics in the 1950s. Uh, they were very like Archie feel. Uh, some of them ran for a really long time. Millie the model is well known. Uh, one of their most popular characters was a girl named Patsy Walker, who, <laughs> uh, who had a long running title and multiple titles. Uh, she dated different boys. She had friends. Her arch rival is Hetty Wolf. She often dates the football jog Buzz Baxter. And uh, in Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 in the 60s, when Stanley married uh, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, they work Millie the Model and Patsy Walker and Hetty Wolf into a, like, a panel in the background, which brings them into the official Marvel Universe. In this issue, we see Patsy Walker married to Buzz Baxter and brought into the Marvel Universe officially as characters by Steve Englehart. He works with them for a while here and then brings her over into the Avengers, where he later makes her Hellcat. Uh, now, part of Hellcat's origins in the comics that are often explored, most recently by Christopher Cantwell, is that Patsy had a mom who was, like, publishing comic books about her. And it, like, ruined Patsy's life and gave her all this mental illness. So they've worked this kind of old history into uh, into her continuity or canon. So this is the first uh, real appearance of Patsy Walker in the Marvel Universe. Uh, I would love to hear your Patsy Walker thoughts. I love her very much. Well, you're also is forgetting. that why in the TV show she was a child star? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that yeah. Why that was okay. I got also, I did not get that that's who she was supposed to be. I'm like, who the fuck's Pat? <laughs> I was like, that's yeah. the least attractive way to call a woman by her name. She's Pat, like the androgynous <laughs> character from SNL in the 80s. This is my wife, Pat. <laughs> uh, Jordan, uh, did you have thoughts on Pat? Oh, just that she is like some of the most tangled continuity of, of Marvel. Like, she'll go on to marry the son of Satan and be an Avenger <laughs> and like have 10 different code names and uh, like and she's one of the characters that commit suicide so, yeah that you you like it's it's this it's so weird that she starts as a romance you know uh comic character becomes an avenger becomes a demon becomes all these different things and is still sticking around 
in this particular issue, and we'll get there in my section, she uh, she gives me like Ado Annie vibes. If you guys know that character, like a poison can develop a cold, you know, like, <laughs> she gives me Some a lot of that dolls? kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. She gives me, is that her name? I don't know if I got her name right. Anyway, she gives me that energy. Uh, she's, uh, she's a lot of, uh, pretty ridiculous. Uh, this is a really fun issue. Let's jump in. It is called, uh, 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 I just lost the name. Uh, evil is all in your mind. Uh, so we're driving home that theme of good versus evil. Uh, let's talk about the cover here. We've got a pretty cool fight sequence over a circus. Uh, Jordan Bloom, do you want to tell us about this cover? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a scene that does not appear in the comic. <laughs> it would have been cool if it did. Uh, uh, Eunice is on this high wire fighting the beast uh, who's uh, hanging on a pole that Blob is ripping off. And I have no idea what Mastermind is doing because that's not how his powers work, but it looks cool. <laughs> It looks cool as hell, and I love the font that they use for the beast. I wish they'd bring that back. Um, it's awesome. Uh, for completionists, much later in publication, but earlier in continuity in X-Men The Hidden Years, we saw Mastermind, Beast, and Eunice team up. There was that weird story with that guy Kruger and, like, Avia the Bird Lady, and that was also themed in a circus. Mastermind loves to create a circus with illusions. So continuity-wise, that happens before this appearance. Uh, so, Mike, will you take us through the first few pages of the book? Tell us what happens. All right. So, in the middle of the woods, Mastermind's using his Mastermind powers to show the new Gray Beast and how this is going to be the newest member. Um, then they just, oh, then he tells him about, okay, the last issue where he kills Iron Man. Turns out that didn't happen. I just made him think he did that. So, we're going to mess with his head. Um, I also love, let's be honest, Beast isn't like cool or useful because of his powers. He was always cool and useful because he's a genius. So anytime we have these stories where like he doesn't have that, I think in X Factor for a while, he was dumb. It's always interesting to be like, oh, you're not the beast. It's one of those kind of situations. Uh, so duh, 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 duh. Um, uh, they're going to recruit him. Uh, they bring him out there. Suddenly he's bouncing around on Blob. Pretty much it's this whole thing. is like, this is what I can do. This is what I can do. Um, they convince him like, oh, okay, we aren't evil. We are, we're, you know, we're, the, we're good people. We're all of that. We're just thought they were evil. So be on our side. We're going to fight for freedom for our people, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and by doing that, we're going to take you into, once again, the circus. I love that because I think the first Silver Age story I ever read was the Blob one. So I don't know if this is the same circus, but it's good to see like, oh, here's the circus again. So, of course, since it's a circus and we're freaks, we can just walk freely among them. It's uh, it's a really interesting theme if we read this with queer subtext. And I'm going to make it <laughs> pretty loud here for a moment because they're talking about being mutants. But if you read it as being queer, here's the here's the story. Blob and Eunice are out. They have found a little circus of queer people to hang out in, and it's their little spot in the woods. It's the it's the neighborhood. It's their place away from all the cops. This is the early 70s, right? Like Stonewall happened, but it's not good for gay people yet. Mastermind found out about it, and he's trying to like get them back into crime. And there's a lot of dialogue about like, dude, we were fine without you. We don't really need you. And he's like, I am your leader, and I'm so brilliant and smart and wonderful. Look at how incredible I am. He calls himself the mind's master a bunch of times. And then they're trying to get the beast to join. The uh, the scene on page three where he bounces off of Blob with a boop, and then he bounces off of Eunice with a f 
And then he hits his head on a rock and then Blob sits on him, pins him to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And Mastermind's speech, again, listen to the queer subtext. Uh, He says, we are your friends, you know, and if you'll be good, we'll let you up to demonstrate our friendship. All four of us are mutants, hunted by humans simply for being born with the powers they wish they had. We are regarded as freaks, and somehow that makes us dangerous. But we are neither good nor evil. Those are humanity's uh, labels for us. And then they take him back to the gay circus, where it is uh, everybody's hanging out. What are your thoughts on the queer subtext here? Because it's kind of fabulous. This idea of what it means to be different resonated in this way, right? Yeah, but it's also with the villains. (laughs) <laughs> it's that thing too. It's like they're different, but also they're the they're literally the freakiest mutants they could give us. <laughs> but that depends on how you define villain, because that's the key, right? There you go. Uh Jordan Bloom, do you have thoughts on the title, The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants itself? Uh it doesn't work well. <laughs> well from Magneto's standpoint, I think. Uh from this, it works great for Mastermind. Um, I've always liked these characters and all the incarnations. And what's funny is uh, there's always a member who thinks they're going to be better than Magneto at leading them. And then they fail miserably like Toad. I remember mm-hmm. was running it in the like early X-Force comics and that was a disaster. Um, but I, I, I agree. I love when they, they show up because um, they are like the, like you were saying, the first counterpoints to the X-Men, like these are the bad X-Men, you know? And uh, so I, I always enjoy seeing them. One thing that just stood out to me on this page was I've never heard clowns being referred to as less than human. He's making this big speech. He's <laughs> saying, you know, behold, those who are truly humans but suffer from physical deformity, such as the sideshow freaks, and behold, those who are truly human and yet find release and pretend to be less, such as the clowns. And it's like, I don't know if that's, the cl- that's how I would define clowns as like less than human, but... You know, he's got his take, I guess. Uh, this idea of like queer people, again, using the subtext or mutants being able to fit in among those that are different. I think that's a cute theme. But anytime they make it about freaks, I'm uncomfortable. In that last panel, the little green guy with the with the black hat standing in front of the world's tallest man. I want to meet this guy. He's, yes. he's a little cutie. <laughs> <laughs> I want him to join. Yeah, he's uh, he's cute. I want a whole story. So uh, I'll take I'll take the next section. Beast is now in this carnival. He has agreed to go with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He is clearly struggling with amnesia, which may or may not be influenced by a mastermind, or it may be related entirely to his transformation. Uh, but despite the fact that he's in a community, on page six, we see him alone in the big top, unable to remember his former life. He's literally there in the dark, sitting on like a training ring outside of an empty animal cage. It's kind of heartbreaking. And then we jump back to the brand corporation where security has been tripled. uh, And to oversee them all, the Pentagon has sent in Buzz Baxter, who I introduced before, and his wife, Patsy. And she looks fabulous. Jordan Olson, I'd love to see you in the this purple mini dress with the boots and the green coat and the white belt. She looks incredible. Uh, Is this giving you the fashion you need? No. <laughs> so, so as a trans woman who transitioned um, in 2000s, this look is like a prerequisite for a lot of trans women, mini skirts and, and thigh high boots or above the knee boots. So it's, it's giving me um, flashbacks of pictures that I should have burned a long time ago. <laughs> okay. Okay. Don't cosplay this. <laughs> 
she says, uh, golly, Buzz, it's so futuristic looking. I wonder if they have an officer's wives clubs. Oh, that character's name's Adelaide. I said Ado Annie. It's oh, Ad- Miss Adelaide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. So Buzz meets Mr. Grant, who is Beast's boss, and he gives them a tour of this very futuristic looking facility. It's giving like Project Pegasus vibes for those that know what that is. He's telling them all about the Beast. Uh, And again, this is based on the real life Rand Corporation. He says, although civilian controlled, the Brand Corporation works directly for the government and the military has a large stake in what happens here. Iron Man refused to follow up on this case. Only he knows why. Because that's what the Avengers do, right? Like, once the villain runs away, they're like, all right, yeah, we're done now. We'll, we'll let the locals take care of it now that we, like, started the fight and destroyed the property. Uh, uh, so he's uh, he's been assigned by the Air Force to, uh, Buzz has been assigned by the Air Force to, like, watch over things. They stop by Hank's office, but he's out. So they go looking for Linda Donaldson. She is uh, acting worried uh, because the Secret Empire may, like, see her as failing. Uh, Grant goes, this could be very serious. We've got to find out if there's espionage in my plant. And Linda thinks, you most certainly do not, you old clown. Which we already know, clowns are the worst things that humanity has to offer. <laughs> so uh, Buzz and Patsy are going to go check out Beast's apartment. Uh, I love Linda. We don't get a lot of her in this issue, but she's fun. Uh, Jordan Olson, did you have thoughts on Linda's fashion? Uh, I, I just realized, so ruffled, blue ruffled uh, blouse, yes. Um, and also I like the green coat with a red hair, which takes me back to Poison Ivy. Oh, always love Poison Ivy look, but uh, green coat, yes. Pink mini, uh, is it a pink mini? It's anyway. hard to tell okay. entirely. <laughs> um, but yeah, oh, so I can already imagine frosted eyeshadow. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm seeing right now. That's what I'm seeing right now. Honestly, it's the same coloring they always give Emma and Jean. Blonde with like icy blue and then redhead with green. Right. They uh they, they love a redhead at Marvel Comics. That's uh, that's for damn sure. Uh on page nine, we see Buzz and Patsy arise arrive at Beast's apartment. As they're leaving, it's raining heavy outside, which is a big theme in this issue. And uh Patsy goes, Burr, April showers are supposed to bring flowers, but this rain's bringing me a cold. Like she's great. <laughs> Uh, inside the apartment is empty, but you can see like Beast's creepy mask and makeup just kind of hanging out. Uh, Buzz wants to break in, but Patsy refuses and he's so mean to her. Uh, Patsy, I'm getting sick of your goody goody attitude. Fine. We'll go back and be good little boys and girls. You know, like there's, there's that energy. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, uh, interior shot of Hank's apartment? It's, uh, (laughs) I thought of, um, a mission impossible. You know how they would always make the masks and, uh, uh, when was Mission Impossible uh, written? I mean, 70s? 60s, right? Was the first, was, was the sorry, 60s was the, the show? Yeah, but that's what I thought of when you said it earlier. And I remember 1966 was the debut. Ah, okay. Well, um, you know what? If it works for a big uh, burly man to cover up and pretend that he's a regular non-hairy man... I guess go for it. We uh, so I don't know people... going in the closet. He's code switching. I don't know if you guys have read the issue before this. We talked about it on the previous show, but he's a furry guy who creates a latex mask and he's like hanging out with his girlfriend, but she doesn't notice. It's it's ridiculous. That's insane. Well, this is like pre-image inducers, right? I think mm-hmm. Claremont's like, no one's wearing masks. That's too ridiculous. Nice. Hey, at this point. On. Is he with Trish Tilby at this point, or is that before? Uh, no, no, no. Trish is much later. Okay. Who's his girlfriend now? 
Uh, he's well, Linda Donaldson. Oh, the, the, um, the mom. But in the next section of my review, there's a woman outside in the rain who's looking for Hank, right? he She sees the couple leave and she's like very desperate to find him. Uh, we don't learn who this is in this issue, but it's Vera Cantor, who was his girlfriend in the 19th. The librarian? Mm-hmm, the character. Yeah, I remember her. Uh, the caption by her goes, well, she might be Carol King or Indira Gandhi or your sister, but she's probably not. It's really stupid. <laughs> Why was she All right, saying? narrator, relax. <laughs> uh, and then on page 10, it is raining really hard. Mastermind needs Beast to break into a townhouse that's like super secure with like wires and sensors and motion shit. And he's the only one who's agile enough because Eunice and Blob can't do this job. Uh, he wants Beast to steal the Ramur diamond, which is the largest diamond in the world. And his plan is, which is really fun, he's going to get the real diamond and then find buyers for the diamond. And once he gets their money, he'll then just give them a fake diamond so he can sell the real diamond to someone else. And this is very, the Hidden Years appearance I talked about before that John Byrne picked up on here, that was literal his, his literal plot. They were capturing people, selling them to this guy named Kruger, uh, or buying them from a guy named Kruger, and then like giving him an illusion of cash instead of like the real thing. Mastermind does this all the time. He he makes you think he paid for his groceries, but he did not. Like never never trust this guy ever ever. Uh, the uh, the Ramor diamond is inside, and uh, Beast is agreed to go after it. Uh, do you guys have thoughts on this first uh, couple sections before we move on to the next one? Was was Mastermind always drawn this way? He really looks like a Tales from the Crypt character. Yeah. Right, like yeah. it's very he, he's lit almost always like a horror character in a lot of these in panels. The 60s yeah. is drawn like this in, in the brown coat with the kind of the wispy hair, always smoking a cigarette. But he looks a little bit more like gaunt or emaciated. Here he just looks like a crazy person. He's the villain in the melodrama that tied your girlfriend down to the railroad tracks here, right? He's the Scooby-Doo villain who rips the helmet off, and it was him the whole time. So my thing with him is his whole powers is make, you know, illusions. And we know he eventually figures it out as Jason Wingard. What took him so long? What took <laughs> him so long to be like, I could be hot. I can look like anybody. What took him so long? I mean, if we do the <laughs> continuity right, he already has three hot daughters at this point, right? Oh, Reagan, wow. Martinique, and Pixie are already conceived. Yes. So... <laughs> uh, okay, okay. So, uh, Jordan Olson, will you take us through the next section? Tell us what happens. This is, a, I don't have a gaydar. So when I read this, I'm like, oh, this is really stupid. But so <laughs> the first, the first panel in, uh, in, in 11 is when um, Eunice and the blob squirts him into the <laughs> hole in the mansion. <laughs> and I'm like, that's stupid. And so when you said it was very, you know, queer undertones, I'm like, Oh, yes. So between Eunice's irresistible force and the blob's bulk, I can already see one of the movies. <laughs> also, they square him right into the hole. They yeah, square him directly into the hole. Into the the hole. Yes. He penetrates the hole. And his goal is to gently put his hand through the <laughs> laser beams uh, to get the the diamond, I gotta I gotta read this dialogue really quickly. Uh, Blob's one? explaining how they're squirting him. 
He goes, squeezed. He's talking to Eunice. And by the way, they call each other Mr. B and Mr. U earlier in this yep. issue, if you notice. It's very boyfriend twins oh energy. Uh, he goes, squeezed between your irresistible force and my immovable bulk. He squirts up like soap out of a fist. Good Lord. <laughs> So yes, um, yeah, I get it now. I get it. Thank you. Also, I will point out if anybody could bottom for the blob, it would have to be a guy with a force field. Like he's the only way he could survive it. Otherwise, he would be crushed. It's the only way it works out. It's very romantic, I guess. The story, the story I referenced earlier, it's a it's a Hulk issue or maybe Marvel fanfare in the eighties. Eunice is dying and he nothing can get through his force field. He can't eat and like air can't get through. And Blob is the only person who can penetrate his force field to like force his way through and give him food. And they use the word penetrate multiple times. Uh, and, and then later Eunice dies in a Spider-Man issue and Blob like sits down in traffic and sobs his eyes out and Spider-Man attacks him and they have this big fight. It's very sad. It's, it's, uh, it's very sad. Okay. Okay. Jordan, keep going. Okay. Okay. So, 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 so one of the amazing things uh, here is how Beast gracefully moves like, oh my God, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Entrapment. Like, <laughs> so if if I was going to put together a team to steal a diamond, Beast would not be the one that I would think of. But then I guess, you know, being mastermind, you take what you can. Um, so Beast was successful in, in getting the diamond. And so he jumps back out. Um, wait, did I, did I already skip a page? No, you're doing great. He uh, he flips yeah. out on the chandelier and he goes, and yeah, a flip yeah, of the legs yeah, and a party. Hi, yo, Beastie away. Ridiculous. <laughs> Yes, and so he jumps back out, and this is the whole time he's in his underwear. He jumps um, outside the hole again and lands on the trapeze, which I guess, you know, being in the circus really helped him. But then um, Mastermind um, uh, makes him believe that it's it's on fire because he had a moment of clarity. You know, when you said earlier about um, his mind is foggy and is it is it the, the serum or is it Mastermind? He had a moment of clarity, kind of starting to realize these guys are not good people at all, which I would have gotten in the beginning when they introduced themselves <laughs> as Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I kind of would have known they're not good. But anyhow, it it distracted. Um, uh, he, he calls Mastermind uh, Boris Badenov here, which is also cute. <laughs> so so, he, so he, he distracted him, I guess, long enough that uh, Mastermind dropped the illusion. Uh, and so humans could see him and he scares them away. As a... Beast, Beast lands in a puddle and splashes and Bob goes, hey, watch the puddles. These trunks aren't a bathing suit. Uh, well, what are they, Bob? <laughs> that, that was my first thought, too. I'm like, yeah, what are they then? loincloth, <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> it's briefs. Um, and so they, they uh, Mastermind scares the humans away by turning into an illusionary monster. And so, and so this is my fashion moment here. When um, Mastermind is walking in flowing Elizabethan ruffled cloak and collar. <laughs> uh, and, and the way it's drawn, I'm thinking, this must be satin. Because velvet <laughs> wouldn't flow like, it, wool wouldn't flow like that either. But so this is where now I see, okay, they're in West Hollywood. Um, so they're walking through. They're walking through, and um, while Mastermind is explaining the rest of his plan, this is when uh, Beast realizes um, 
oh yeah, they're bad people. So he does the uh, jump split to um, <laughs> to attack <laughs> everyone with a, and you strike Snarg. And the panel before that, you could just see how well-groomed his eyebrows are. The, uh, the monster <laughs> that is drawn in the illusion is so scary. It's such a cool illusion. I think it's great. The other, the only other thing I wanted to point out is when Beast returns the diamond to Mastermind, he goes, here, take your giant jewel and choke on it. Again, just more subtext. It's, uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, Mike, what were you, you going to say? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, 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 Jordan, any comments on that last section before we uh, close out the book? No, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, will you finish the story for us then? Sure. Uh, so suddenly Beast has this moment of clarity, which is really funny to me. That's like, he says, um, now I see it, the brotherhood of mutants, the brotherhood of evil mutants, as if them robbing someone like it didn't click until he remembered that they had evil in their name and that's when he realizes that he's messed up throwing in with them it's uh it comes a little late um but apparently the robbery wasn't clear enough of a tell so he starts fighting all of them he's getting smacked around uh by eunice and eunice has another uh great line uh but i can touch him hard and it's maybe not the threat Eunice thinks it is but After, uh, afterward Beast says an animal just keeps on coming yeah. <laughs> also they make another slippery soap joke again yep, they keep yep. talking about soap coming out of a clenched fist yeah. well that's I, I love that is it's their they say like let's do the thing again on the next page like or I guess it comes a little later uh yeah it, uh right on Mr. B just like soap out of a clenched fist they have this is like their um fastball special like yeah. they, it's a move they do twice in this that they've practiced and um i like that it actually reminded me of uh during the Krakoa years they were doing i think in the new mutants run they were talking about how they were figuring out how to combo their powers more so you know these guys were ahead of the game so we get we get two prints. One of them is Colossus tossing Wolverine and yelling fastball fastball special, and the other is Love and Eunice squirting Beast and yelling yeah. so the fist, slippery uh, soap. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, so they shoot Beast through. They're inside this this kind of trailer. So they shoot him out of it, uh, and um, he destroys it. And it's a lot of he calculates like with his. He calculates with his like scientific brain. They shot me out, so if I land back in it, it's gonna split them apart and make them bounce off of each other. So, <laughs> and it works. He's, He's right. Uh, <laughs> some, so some janky science on, uh, on on the piece part, but it it seems to pay off. And it, again, again, they you, bring up soap and fist again. You think the soap is mightier than the fist? They love fisting. They I was gonna say just another perfect out of context line. <laughs> Uh, uh, which is great. Um, and then Beast is kind of standing in front of a lion's cage and he starts to crawl inside of it. And of course they follow him in and he jumps over them and locks them inside. And this is when things get really kooky. Uh, they, their powers kind of, uh, backfire and they're just kind of floating and bouncing around this cage until, Eunice is knocked unconscious, but that doesn't turn his powers off. So there's just this lifeless Eunice floating around the cage, just blobbing him or bouncing <laughs> all around, which is a really fun. Uh, unpopular theory. This is how they fuck. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I'm not doing that thing. 
It's their frottage. <laughs> also, uh, I'm just them back in the closet. And then again, Beast has some weird lines where he's his inner monologues about the raw meat of battle, the heady wine of victory. These are the foods of a beast. And it's like, I think he's just hungry. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what's going around in his head. Uh, and then he weirdly then pivots to like Alice, the Wonder Alice in Wonderland metaphor. He's, he's all over the place uh, in his taunts. And he, he tracks down Mastermind and uh, they're fighting. But this time uh, Beast is able to kind of see through Mastermind's um, tricks. And he rushes at him. Mastermind's trying everything. He's throwing monsters and barbarians and warriors and dragons and vampires. Nothing's working. And then in a splash page that I found uh, very confusing uh, by the way it's drawn, it looks like he's just ripping off his dick. Uh, did anyone else? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's Beast standing over Mastermind, whose legs are kind of splayed up, and he's ripping off long pieces of his costume. Uh, in both hands, saying any more tricks, mastermind. Does uh, uh does satin tear that easily? <laughs> um, it no, not in that way. But he's bees. He's bees. <laughs> this is a great splash page. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's pretty pretty amazing. This one. Uh, so I've no, I don't know what he's ripping off. I guess it's the bottom of his costume, his cape. Yeah, uh, cape, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Because his pants are still, you know, together. <laughs> <laughs> it's, his, it's his cape, because you will see it in the very, very last panel. Uh, and on oh. the final page, uh, uh, Jordan, do you want to do that one, or do you want me to take it? Yeah, go for it. I mean, it's, it's kind of what we talked about earlier. That yeah. uh, On the final massive. page, Mastermind is driven mad. It's still pouring rain. Uh, and uh, Mastermind is just kind of stammering. Vampires, oh lord, vampires, swirling dragons, dragons, barbarians. Like, he's caught in his own illusion. Beast calls the police to return the diamond and then just, like, walks off with the phone off the hook, leaving Mastermind, like, crying in uh, uh, crying in uh, the rain. Uh, now, two things about Mastermind very quickly. Claremont in the Dark Phoenix saga portrays him as doing this, like, very subtle, long con with Jean Grey, which drives her mad, or with the, the Phoenix, right? Uh, when Zeb Wells recently wrote Mastermind in the Hellions, he keeps the entire team of the Hellions trapped in illusions that seem to go on for years. And it shows him at one point like super exhausted, like he's having a hard time maintaining the control of these illusions. Uh, you have to wonder if this part at the end, he's not really driven mad. He just made the Beast think he was. Uh, and uh, and Beast walks away and leaves him alone, right? Because he's off to the Hellfire Club after this. Uh, thoughts on Mastermind in this issue? Uh, I I think this here he's exhausted, but uh, because we don't see him getting captured, uh, he could have recovered. You know, just a moment of weakness. Jean Grey did leave him crazy later. That is the thing that happened as well in the continuity. He's in a he's in a madhouse when he gets the the legacy virus later, right? But he always has a little bit. Like, is it Phoenix that kind of makes him a little bit of like? Like sex creep vibes, right? Like, mm -hmm. or is it? Did he? Oh, have, he was always like that, though. He was like that to uh, Wanda. That's what I was wondering. Was there he a was Wanda super rapey to Wanda too? Like, there's a there's a scene in like X Men six or seven where he's like, Wanda, I could make you have anything you want. I can look like anyone you want. You can have a castle. You just have to marry him. She's like, No, I'll never marry you. It's like very soap opera. But yeah, he's he's skeevy back then too. 
<laughs> also, he must have been a lot older because even Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, they were like teenagers, but he was like a full-on adult. It's weird to have like this full-on adult around all these like young people. <laughs> we will see these characters again in the Secret Empire story that I referenced earlier in Captain America, uh, which is early 70s before Claremont comes on the book. Uh, do we have any kind of final impressions before we do our wrap up here? This was delightful to visit this with you guys. This is such a campy, incredible issue. I have so much fun with it. This is what I remember comic books is uh, is supposed to read like, um, look like, the, the whole vibe. It's campy. Um, it's almost like uh, if Shakespeare was a comic book. Uh, that's that's kind of like the 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 stupendous drama uh, and all the flair but also um uh with the art i'm a fan of the art i think that's the first thing that i that attracts me to these comic books is the designs of these characters this one not really because of the varying proportions uh but also I got spoiled jumping into the Hellfire Gala storyline and the Krakoa storyline where all this glamorous stuff comes about. But this makes me appreciate uh, the kids back then when they read this. I can only imagine how wonderful they might have felt to be able to escape into another world and yeah. to read into it what they want to read into it. Well, it's interesting because when I was young, they released the X-Men the early years uh, around the same time that they had like regular X-Men. So like the red team, uh, blue team and gold team. So it's interesting, like as a kid reading two very different types of comics, reading a modern comic book from like Jim Lee versus this like Kirby Stan Lee style of X-Men. It was always interesting. So this brought me back to the like, oh, I, this would still be considered Silver Age, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, this is Silver Age. This is before Speedy had um, <laughs> heroin coming out of his veins, oh right? They always say, like, that's when, like, comics change to Bronze Age. Uh, the Bronze Age is coming up, uh, and this is kind of on the cusp of it. Giant Size is kind of the turning point in some ways, which is around 1974, 1975. So we're getting close. Uh, Jordan, any final thoughts? Um, you guys totally sold me on, on Eunice and Bob as a couple. I would love to have seen them go out with uh black tom and juggernaut oh like they have they would complement each other really well i mean we've done those issue reviews on my show if you are interested we've done a trial of the blob we also did a trial of the combination of eunice the untouchable and the vanisher uh and we talk a lot about their relationship specifically in both of those episodes uh one of my early episodes has anthony Oliveira talking about these two as a couple uh in, in a in an early show of mine it's a it's a good time yeah i uh i love them together blob is the kind of straight one from the gay mystique brotherhood but he's also gay so it's fine <laughs> also interesting i keep forgetting there are only like a dozen or so mutants in their entire Marvel universe, yeah, there's like there's point, like you don't have to eighteen at, at this point. Yeah, like of good, evil, all of that. Like, because it's weird, we have like a thousand mutants now, and you, you want to make a character, it's a mutant now. It's weird to think like this is all we had, <laughs> and like only three of them were women. Yeah, there's a there's a storyline at the end of the first X Men era where the Sentinels capture all the mutants in the world and like bring them together, and it's like twelve characters, you know. You got, like, <laughs> You got like the Vanisher and the Living Pharaoh, and you know there's a couple of these guys running around, and then they start. Up, of course, she has a name. 
Yeah, yeah, Lorna Dane. Uh, we love Lorna. Uh, she's one of my favorites. Uh, what a genuine joy to hang out with you all and just smile and vibe and laugh. This was a wonderful time. Uh, thank you all for being here. It's good to get to know you better. And Jordan Bloom, I'm such an incredible fan. I hope to see more comics work from you in the future, but I'll continue to follow whatever you're doing. Uh, we're going to put this episode out on January 15th. As we're wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And uh, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, let's go Jordan Olson, uh, Mike, and then Jordan Bloom. Yeah, um, the girl with a great smile. Ding! Uh, social media, Facebook, no, no Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, and the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> anything you want to plug, my friend? No, not yet. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, maybe WonderCon. We're going to do Hellfire Gala Walk. It could be our final season. Uh, and it's going to be in that palm tree garden area. It's going to be a themed event. It's a fashion you, show. You are the cutest. Uh, you give off the loveliest, just funnest vibe. It was so fun to hang with you in person. I can't wait to see you again. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, Mike. Uh, look for Stonewall Prep, now available on Amazon. You can find more information on that on Instagram at Stonewall Prep. Uh, more about me, uh, specifically my upcoming shows at Flappers. You can find that at Mike Siriaco, C-I-R-I-A-C-O, 2099. And for those that follow Mike uh, on Instagram, he looks like his photos, and that's a good thing. So, Mike, it's great <laughs> to see you today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and finally, Jordan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so nice to meet everyone. Uh, love talking X-Men. Um, you can uh, buy Minor Threats. The the trade is out right now at your local comic store or Amazon or wherever you want to buy stuff. Uh, the last issue of The Alternates just came out this week, which is our first spinoff. And um, you can find me at Bloom Jordan on, well, I'm trying to get off Twitter, but uh, <laughs> uh, Instagram and Blue Sky and the other ones. I'm always Bloom Jordan. Uh, lastly, I keep my own social media private because I got kiddos. Uh, the three of you are welcome to add me if you'd like. Just ask. Uh, but the show you can follow at Graymalkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Uh, we're also on Discord, but mostly on Instagram these days. The next show coming out immediately after this on the main show is going to be Amazing Adventures number 14. Uh, the guests on that episode are Simon Furman, who wrote the North Star and Alpha Flight stuff in the 90s. We have a lot to talk about, as well as Alex Segura returning to the show and uh, and my friend Scott Free. Uh, on the Patreon channel, the next episode coming out uh, where we do character-focused episodes is uh, me and my friend Amanda Martini and uh, and Gary uh, reviewing Fantasia, which I think people are pretty excited about. So that's going to be uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Thank you, Jordan and Jordan and Mike, uh, for a lovely time. Uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Graymalk and Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Graymalk and Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grimalkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grimalkin Lane. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.